Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Dude, thank you so much for for making this happen. I know it was kind of hard to to get it set up and and have it actually work out on it a day, but I really appreciate you know taking time to sit down and and well, I mean, just, my just pleasure. To chat with me at all. Thank but. you for the for the inquiry. And uh, yeah, it's I'm a little nervous, but I think we'll we'll do some good work here today. That's the goal, anyways. This morning. I went and actually listened to an episode of, of Adventures in Odyssey for the first time in like a couple of years. And I didn't just, you know, just pick a random one willy-nilly. I, I chose, I think it was the first ever one that you recorded a voice on. I don't even know what your character's, I don't think your character had a name. At, maybe it did. Freddy. Freddy. Episode okay. two. Yes. Okay. So you, <laughs> you know, I, I should know this, but. Yeah. Life of the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Was... I was gonna I was blanking on the name too, but I, I was just like listening through that episode and like I, I stopped listening to Adventures in Odyssey later than I should have because you're supposed to just kind of grow out of shows and like, you know, move on sure. to, to big kid things. But I you know I didn't do that. I liked the show a lot, but I, I gradually stopped listening just because I didn't find it interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. But back then it was just actually a different show. It was like it, it really felt like like a, an audio type of Andy Griffith type show or like Dick Van mm-hmm. Dyke. It was like, it was so much just like this. It was, it was a TV sitcom that you could listen to where it was just like, it was yeah. just these really casual jokes, this back and forth, really like fun sense of humor. And then there was a, mm-hmm. this Christian edge where like, okay, let's talk about some life lessons as well. Sure. Which I, that was yeah. so fun. But like, I how, think the early generation of the show, the first iteration of it was very pretty mild. Uh, pretty, uh, what I would describe as, you know, as Davy and Goliath, uh, you know, just, I don't think it was like, they weren't trying too hard to, uh, you know, stand on a soapbox and like hit people over the head with a particular message, but it was just like, okay, let's, you know, let's make a show for kids and, you know, be good to your siblings, listen to your parents, don't lie, you know, just kind of those sort of life lessons of of you know what it is to like be a kid in the world um and that i think at the time the the production staff felt that there wasn't much content like that for children out there who were growing up in uh the evangelical environment and so um there was a big push that was occurring uh of funding some you know things like this and and the parent organization that funded adventures in odyssey they, they i think had been looking for content that they could put out to that crowd 
And so in the beginning, it was just, you know, again, I was, I was 10. So I don't know a whole lot about what was happening behind the scenes. I was just hired talent that they brought in to record. Uh, Was it, was it, was that like your first kind of big gig or I mean, like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So like, so what had happened was we had just moved to California from Texas. Um, and I did not handle that move very well at all. It was, it was really stressful for me. I mean, that's hard. I had, go ahead. I said, I mean, that's hard at 10. Yeah, but I, I had also exhibited some uh, some signs of some, uh, you know, what we now know to be mental health issues. I had had to, so I was in a class for gifted students in Texas, and then I had basically a nervous breakdown at the age of about nine. Um, and I had to, you know, go to a different school, went to the private school where my mom was teaching. And then that summer... Um, we moved. My dad got transferred from his job. And so we moved to Southern California and it was a big change. Um, you know, this was like 1987. And so like moving from Texas where there's very much this like ideology of Texas, yeah, I call it the cult of Texas and moving from the cult of Texas to the cult of California, right. uh, was a big head trip. And I, I was really miserable. I would have a lot of nightmares, things that, nowadays and as we get more into my story it'll start to make sense but i i was clearly going through something i was upset i was depressed a lot i was i didn't like the school i was going to i didn't like the house i was in it was a very just a huge culture change um and i think in that disruption my mom was looking for activities to put me into and i was always into sports but i had like the year to be leading up to this I had shown an interest in plays. Um, I had done a play at school and then I would always be like putting together little shows and dragging my friends into it or puppet shows with the stuffed animals in the room. A number of times my parents had to like sit through some awful play I had created at like the age of eight. (laughs) And so to her credit, she, I think found like stuff with, with scripts too. Like you, you were going all out on these plays. Oh, I mean, yeah, no, I would write, wow. I would force At my brothers eight. to rehearse the lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, That's it was man. It written, these were, you know, <laughs> what does Spike Lee call his movies? Joints. These were Dave Griffin joints, you know, like <laughs> these were That's written, awesome. produced, directed. I think one time I put on a circus uh, in my neighborhood and like forced That's all the kids amazing. to be in my circus um you didn't find any like bearded ladies or anything among your friends no no this was so like every year like uh barnum and bailey's would come through houston that was like a big stop for them my dad would take us every year and i was just the spectacle of it was fascinating to me right and all the moving parts and the different performers and the different things that were happening and so somewhere i got the crazy ass idea to like (laughs) put on a circus and I think I did some magic tricks and things like that and roped in some of, you know, my neighbor, all the neighborhood kids. And, you know, we sold tickets and the parents came out and it was re- really cringe material, I'm sure. Um, but this is before and, the move, right? What's that? This is before the move, though? Yes, this okay, is before yeah, the yeah. move. And so I think my mom had seen that there was like a, a an interest that I had in the performing arts and... So when we moved, she was kind of shopping around for different churches 
and she stumbled upon a woman who had a she was putting together a theater group for kids and i think my mom felt at the time like this is a good way to put this kid's energy into and instantly like i i shined at it pretty quick we we were doing a play with johnny erickson tata and i was cast as one of the leads and then during rehearsals one day uh the woman around the group called about 10 of us up she's like you know you need to go to this location and there's an audition and really didn't give us much more information than that and so i went in just kind of wide-eyed and and green and there's a script and you know little you know one of these like little flat tape recorders with like the really cheesy like 1982 like tiny little microphones and it was me and another young girl from the our acting group uh and read it and you know it came naturally to me because the the number one skill set for this was can you read without making it sound like you're reading right. uh, can you read in character can you take direction can you understand the script and it it, it just flowed for me pretty easily mm-hmm. did not take any any work at all for me to like figure it out um the way some kids like yeah, pick up a basketball and it just makes really sense. Is, or you, yeah, you pick up a guitar. You're kind of like born with because I mean I I notice yeah. I've you know I meet some people and I'm like okay like or we're like we'll pass around a book and like let's let's read to each other and it's like some people just have this where it's like the words mm-hmm. jump off the page and come alive and they're mm-hmm. other people it's just like okay I, I see that you're reading and I could hear the words you know it's yep. it's but it's not something that you that you so much like can even teach it's just like either you either have it or you don't yeah. and I I think. I think too, it, 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 yeah. Cause like in school you would do that where, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and there's definitely the kids who really, you know, are maybe struggling with a learning disability or dyslexia or something like that. Yeah. Um, or it just doesn't the way it processes, yeah. you know, there's, it just is a difficult thing. And I think in the early years, that was a problem that they had when they were casting was trying to find kids that, you know, at a young age, the age range that they're trying to put this program out for, um, you know, is like, eight to 12. So trying to find kids in that age range that can then read naturally and, and have it not be sort of like a clunky, you know, where you get a cadence or you, you know, get a clear uh, stumbling over dialogue. I think that was a pretty hard thing for them to find. And so when they found me, it was like, ah, <laughs> you know, here's this little 10 year old kid with, you know, um, and I was, I wasn't like Hollywoodized. I, you know, right. basically we had just moved, uh, maybe three months before, four months mm-hmm. before. Uh, so it was a, it was a pretty quick thing that occurred. Uh, and it wasn't like my parents were pushing me into the career. I think they were just looking for something that I liked to do. And when I found this, it, that was it. Like, this is what I like to do. Yeah. It's what, Did it feel like a little sense of, I mean, like you said, you, you went through this move and it just like, it felt like the culture that, or everything that was like your world was just, it was gone and you just felt mm-hmm. totally out in the middle of nowhere. Did this feel like a little kind of like slice of home to like? Uh, no, it didn't feel like home. That came later. It, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that did come later for sure for me. It was more like... finding a reason to exist if that makes any sense like it was bigger than home it was like this realization that you know i i mean my very first recording the way they did that was 
uh, in their, before they ever moved to Pomona, they had a facility in Whittier, California, and they recorded episodes one and two in this studio. And like the building was vacant because they were, they were moving over to Pomona. It was this really spooky, like place to go to. And there, it was the only time I ever recorded like this with them where it was a table, a flat table with like, like a spider's legs coming out of it of, uh, microphones coming out from the desk. And so five actors gathered around okay. the f- five microphones around this table. And, you know, I'm sitting right across from Will or Hal Smith. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, somebody says to me like, you know, Oh, he, he did Winnie the Pooh and to, you know, you're 10 years old yeah. and like, wow, this is huge. <laughs> And, but it's easy and it's fun and it doesn't like, I'm nervous, but I'm not so nervous that I can't do it. It's because it, it, I think I was a kid that was good at sort of tapping into my imagination. Mm. And that was a very, and that I think also comes from like reading at a young age. Um, So it's very easy for me to get caught up in the world. And so even though I was scared and didn't know what I was doing, it still felt like I belonged here and that, you know, sometimes when you're around adults as a, as a young child like that, you feel very much like a kid. And in this instance, I didn't, and I wasn't being treated like a kid. I wasn't being talked down to. A, and so it was this very comfortable uh, thing. And in, in a place of like disruption and chaos in my life, it actually felt very grounding mm. to have something that felt good um, and, you know, brought me those positive dopamine hits in the brain yeah. as opposed to like, you know, I don't understand why in California, the school is outside, you know, like where's the hallways, where's the, you know, uh, where are the tornadoes? <laughs> where's the, you know, where's the like weather. Uh, and in California, like, you know, just everything was different. The house we lived in, we it didn't have a carpet. It was like a concrete, like Frank Lloyd Wright style, you know, and coming from Texas, everything is brick. Cause you know, nature's yeah, yeah. trying to kill you in Texas. Um, <laughs> and you, so it's just like, it was a total fish out of water thing. And, but then doing this was like just this immensely yeah. rewarding, positive experience. But you said it, um, it gave you like a reason or just like it, it, you said, what did you say? It said it gave you a reason to be alive or a reason, like a, a reason to exist almost. Yeah. It was like, yeah. So like in the, the first time I did it, I thought it was just going to be a one-time thing. Then they called me back two weeks later and we did episodes three and four. And then the phone calls just kept coming and it didn't really stop for about 10 years. Wow. Um, and so somewhere in the middle there, uh, it definitely became a reason to exist. It, it, or I felt like this was my purpose. Yeah. Um, maybe not so much of that particular show, but the art, you know, the, this process of like going into a studio and working with a character and working mm-hmm. with a script and playing off other actors, um, that was the part of it that like really was like saving me when I was in a lot of, you know, psychological pain and um, the unpleasantness of the rest of my world. Hmm. So, I mean, how did, how did you, so, I mean, you're, you're 10 years old, you've, you've got this new thing that's just like, okay, it's, it's giving life. I mean, would, would you describe it at that point is that it, you really, it felt like it gave your life meaning or it was just like... No, I th- I don't think I was internalizing it at that point like that. Um, that's something that kind of came later. It was just, it, it was like, I don't know. It's almost like a drug. Um, 
if you've ever had the experience of, you know, taking something that altered your reality, it was like that. It was this sense of here was a thing I had never done before. And then you go in and do it. And the experience is so overwhelmingly positive that it's, it's like, I don't know, like watering a dying plant or something or, or putting water on a seed and suddenly it sprouts. So like, I I wouldn't have known that I was going to enjoy this so much until I actually did it. And then once I did it, it was so much better than I thought it would be. Um, Yeah. I I had this experience just this last week that where it was like, obviously this whole last year has been COVID. And so a lot mm -hmm. of the normal parts of our lives have not been happening. We've had to kind of rebuild our lives and reshape them. Oh yeah. Pandemic mode. But Last week, I got to play my first gig in a year and a half, and it was just my brother and I who who have been, you know, we've played music together all of our lives, and so mm-hmm. I had, I I just I didn't know it was going to feel like this, but it's just like after getting to sit there and just play for people and have them like enjoy it and just feel appreciated, feel needed, and feel feel like yep. I was doing something that was just like I don't know, it's like it's, you're just participating in something where it's like this is mm-hmm. working, and it's like there's something about that that I was like. This is going to get me through. This could get me through in a month. If I have a shit oh, yeah. month, this this moment right here is enough. It's life. It saves your life. Yeah. No. And that's. I think that's for something I didn't understand in the early years of you know growing up as an adolescent, but that I've come to appreciate about myself later, is that I am in fact an artist. I can't. And I don't say that like capital A artist. I, I mean like lowercase a, like blue collar. I'm a, I'm an artist. Yeah. This is my gift in life. This is what I'm good at. Some some kids can take apart uh, mechanical things and put them back together. Other kids build things mm-hmm. with blocks. Other kids can pick up pen and paper and draw really amazing stuff. Like I think when you find that you're an artistic person and you have that flame inside of you, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, or that spirit inside of you, there is nothing else. There's nothing like it. There is nothing else. And it's hard to explain to people who don't go through it. Um, but it is an absolute, I mean, I sometimes like I can get, I can feel it in my toes and my fingertips. Sometimes I'll get this like almost body vibration. I mean, thing that's, yeah. it's sounds spooky to talk about, but it's very real. Um, and it's, you know, I think also as artists and as a performing artist, I'm very in tune with like my body and, and so I, when you get these like dopamine hits or these like adrenaline rushes, um, it, it's a very physical experience that is, it's almost like getting high. In fact, I think you are getting high. Yeah, yeah. You're getting high off of like, you know, the, the dopamine and the serotonin. But especially as a performer, there's another layer of it that it, it sounds sort of spooky when I talk about it, but I don't mean it in a spooky way. It's very literal, but you can feel the crowd. Yeah, you, yeah, there's a very palpable energy that, and I, I don't mean energy in like a foofy like way, <laughs> but like a very literal focused yeah. energy way where you can feel it. And as an actor, and I would assume as a musician too, yeah. once you start learning that you can control that and work the room and really then like create a, an experience for your audience. Mm-hmm. And and there's this energy transfer between right, them like and you as a performer, and, and there's just nothing really else like it. There's it's utterly transcendent as an yeah. experience in life. Um, 
you know, maybe somebody who's a healer who saved somebody's life, you know, it might be something similar, but it's like, it's us going to 11, so to speak. Yeah. Um, And so it's, it's something that's utterly, it's hard to explain, but you can see it like in the eyes of like a really good athlete kid, Yeah. you know, and they they just scored a touchdown or they scored a goal or whatever. Um, And you see like that light in their eyes as just like, okay, this is why I exist. And they shine. Um, and I think as artists, we have that too. And I don't know, in Canada, it's probably a little different in America. We don't give a shit about artists. Um, so you're, you are really not encouraged to become an artist down here. Um, and so a lot of kids don't find this out about themselves until later in life. There's not ever a concerted effort to really develop these skills in children um, and so for me, it was kind of like a shock. It was, I, I didn't know I was going to be good at this. Then when I was good at it, nobody really helped me along or coached it. Or, you know, it was just like, like, oh, okay, I've got this show that I work on. I also do community theater. And, and then there would be little side projects that would come out of that. Um, and so, but it was always kind of the same core group of people that my mom trusted. And that was like, you can work with them and nobody else. Yeah. Um, and so that was like my one really big outlet for this skill set that I had, uh, at least until I got into adulthood. Yeah. But yeah, I, that I can imagine like that feeling you're talking about as a live musician, uh, especially during COVID. Yeah. Um, same thing, like, you know, my life path has gotten me further and further away from performing. And so the rare times I get to do it now, holy shit, it is. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter how much time goes between performances. When I step in and I feel it hit yeah. my spinal cord again, yeah. it's, it's like just, it's like, again. this is what I'm supposed to be yeah. doing. Like there's nothing, nothing else satisfies, nothing else satisfies, which is very frustrating when the thing you're good at, you get to do very rarely. Yeah. Which I mean, I, I want to get to that that point in your life but but let's see if you can we'll fill get in some there gaps. yeah fill, fill in some gaps before we get there because <laughs> a little foreshadowing this, yeah because this this really amazing thing that had landed for you didn't or at least where, where did we go from here i mean this, this this was this was an amazing thing but then something else wasn't clicking about life and so i i come from a long line of brilliant insane people um, and mental illness runs in my family on both sides and it, it sort of collided on me. Uh, there's another facet of that. So I, I, I have two parents that both struggle with, uh, different issues on those spectrums for the sake of their privacy. I won't say what, but, um, the other part of this is so there's this genetic predisposition to mental health issues. Um, and then when I was born, I was born, I was jaundice. I was underweight. I was breech and I broke a shoulder coming out. Um, and so back in the late seventies, they would Sorry, stick could, could kids quick, in the, it was like a new thing at the time. What jaundice they would put is, kids, Cause I only heard that word recently in a game of D and D I think. Say that again. Said, could you explain what jaundice is? Because I, I I've heard that word once. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I believe it's a liver problem. Uh, so some children when they're born, they're basically yellow, um, and they what they do now is they kind of wrap the kid up and they put you under a black light, basically, 
Um, I'm not entirely sure if, is it a viral thing? But I think it's a liver functioning thing. Um, and it's not uncommon, uh, but it's, you know, not every kid gets it, um, you know, but it basically I was sick. And so in the, in those days, the thought was, okay, let's whisk this kid off into an incubator. Okay. And the incubator was this plastic box uh, with like a glove you could put into it, like you're sandblasting or something. Um, and so my mom would always tell the story of how for the first week of my life, I was in this little box and she couldn't touch me. And we know now, like babies, when they're first born, they need yeah, instant really contact with their mother. Uh, my children, when they were born, were immediately put on their mother's chest before the cord was even cut. Um, and, and what happened with me was that I was not allowed that I was put into this plastic like bubble (laughs) and I came across some research in in the last few years that has shown that children and babies that were put into that situation have a higher predisposition for issues like anxiety, panic attacks, Mm -hmm. depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, mental health issues. And so we've got a kid with like this genetic predisposition to my family and then a birth situation that also then produces this um, consequence, I guess I would say, or side effect. Um, And so I was kind of like it, there was no, you know, looking at it now as you know, for years I was in denial, but the reality is like, there was no way this wasn't going to land on. Yeah. Um, And even before we moved to California, looking back on it, I can see patterns where it was already present in my life at a yeah. very young age. Um, I, I can remember always being nervous and worried about life and having a really bleak outlook, even, uh, you know, at the age of like two, um, I just always had that, you know, I was definitely an obsessive compulsive. I always felt like I was being watched. Um, and always felt like danger or trauma is right around the corner. I've always had this like anticipation of, of doom, I guess is the best way I would say it. Um, and so I was a really stressed out little kid. Um, I would cry if I didn't get an A. I was a terrified that I was going to get in trouble. And then you add into that that I was brought up in a very conservative environment, very religiously conservative very culturally conservative, certainly in Texas. Um, and there's like and, also deep paranoia built into American evangelicalism where it's like there's this, this oh, yeah. idea that like, you know, that the Antichrist is coming and all this. <laughs> and if you're a kid that already ha- is like fearful, that was like napalm in my brain. Yeah. That like Jeez. church scared the shit out of me as a kid. Like it, it was never something that was ever pleasant or fun. It was terrifying. And, you know, the concept that, you know, like the world's going to hell and there's nothing we can do to stop it. The idea that like, I, I'm a, just a terrible person that doesn't deserve to exist. And so then you add to that, like a predisposition for depression. And it's just like, it's a perfect, story. I mean, it's a, it's a wonder I'm still here today. Uh, because like, I, I was never happy about anything except for performing. Um, and so what started happening, you know, as, as I'm getting into this show and then the parallel of my life, because the show really tracked with my life for, 
until I got written out and I was on the show for a good 10 years, uh, which is unusual. Um, and so there's a lot of parallels in the way they wrote that character and things that were happening in my life. Um, but in, in my personal life, I was horribly depressed, horribly depressed. I can remember, uh, you know, I, w- I was thinking of suicide when I was in the first grade. I can clearly remember that. Like it just my whole life, I, I never felt good. I never felt like a good person. I never felt worthy of existing. I, and then these things were kind of reinforced in Sunday school. I don't, not intentionally, but you know, like right. y- I would ask questions cause I, I none, none of it ever made sense to me. Mm. Uh, and I would just argue and, and be so frustrated with like my Sunday school teacher and my parent. Um, I had one parent that was very religious and one that wasn't. And so that created some like some tension, yeah. psychological conflict of like, well, which of you is right? Uh, and I'm forced to go with this parent to do this thing. And whenever I go there, I don't feel good because, you know, things I don't realize until later as an obsessive compulsive, I sometimes get stuck with really unpleasant thoughts in my head. Mm. Well, when you're an eight year old kid in Sunday school and you're trying to have your Sunday school teacher explain this to you, they don't know what the problem is. And, you know, it's 1985 and nobody knows what mental illness is. And and so you get a lot of messages that are really frightening. Um, Did did you end up having a sense of the dissonance as far as like, I mean, this, this thing that you found that suddenly just like feels so right being deeply connected with that, you know, same religion, obviously that was, that was landing in in a very difficult way for you. Mm -hmm. How did you process that? So I did, well, for me, there was never, you know, I get asked this question a lot or some variation of this question, like what, what did the show mean to you? Because for fans of the show, uh, it is a religious experience for a lot of them. Um, and so for, for fans, it's a really deeply, deeply spiritual thing. Um, as a performer, it's a script, right? It's, it's, I'm in a room with actors and we are running through the lines so fast that really there's, you know, like I, I told somebody once, you know, usually I would forget what the episode was about by the time I got in the car. Um, and so for me, it, the religious function of the show was more about, I knew it was the, the, the fact that the show was religious is why I was allowed to do it. Right. But whether it, did that affect me? No, I, it was, it was performing. It was like this, you know, this all the performing I did what? was in Christian stuff. All of it, the, the theater group I was in, it was like, that was the only way my mom would allow me to dip a toe into this profession um because you know they were pretty naive about the industry and and concerned and rightly so um and but yeah for me the the religious message of the show never really i I never really paid attention it was just the background and the, the other part of that is white evangelical culture was my entire world right the school i went to was predominantly white when I went to private Christian schools, they were predominantly white. My church was predominantly white. So when you go into the studio and it's predominantly white Christians and everybody's talking the same language, right. it doesn't feel any different. There's no like separate. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go do a Christian show. No, I'm just going to go act right. now. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like doing, it's like if you go to a Christian school and you do math, but they pray before class. Right. You're not doing Christian math. You're just doing, it, yeah. well, maybe you are, but you're doing, <laughs> you're just doing math, one right? Plus one plus and so one the, the trappings of the environment, that's just the world you know. Everything's Christian. Everything's good. You know, we're the good guys. Um, and I think in that early, the, the generation that I was on the show, I think there was, while there was certainly some proselytizing, it wasn't the culture of white evangelical Christianity had not gone completely crazy at that point. They were still like in the late eighties and through the, uh, the 90s, it was more about, I think they were just trying to put out content that was good uh, and quality. That wasn't the other big thing about it was that they were trying to make something that was quality entertainment yeah. um, because so much within the Christian publishing industry at that time was very much not quality. It was pretty, pretty weak. So the focus uh, was, it was almost like there's other stuff, other people out there trying to like, you know, bash people's brains in with, with a message. But like there, there's a niche here that needs to be filled of like bothering to try to really serve the art form a little bit. and Which they do. did to their credit. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it, they, and that was the other thing too, was like, I think I was unaware that this art form existed. You know, I knew acting existed. I knew film existed. I knew TV. I'd always heard about War of the Worlds and, you know, this old-timey radio stuff. Um, but then to actually come in and do audio theater and to see how simple it is to produce and to produce it really well. Yeah. Really what you need is is great writing, great acting, and a great production team. Yeah. And which that's all. that's all of those things are really hard to get. Yeah. But I say that like it's easy, but really it was a small group of guys. It was essentially two teams of two people. Right. Uh, we had two writers, we had two sound engineers. Uh, I know there were some folks editing in the background, uh, but it was a pretty small operation in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, it, and the nice thing about that art form is it's very inexpensive to produce well. Such a small number of people can accomplish, like just comparing, I guess, to, to film where it's like it takes so much, so many people. Right. Now, here you just, and here the beauty of that is, is that you can put a little bit more money. I don't know what their budget was back in the day. Yeah. We were getting like $75 session pay, yeah. but it's not, you don't need CGI. You don't, which didn't even exist at the time, but you, it was really simple sound effects. And really it was centered around story and characters. Yeah. And I think then when you have a, a talented cast, which they, they found right away um, with the adults that they had picked, it almost produced itself. I, I don't yeah. say that to shortchange anybody. It, there were really talented people working at all levels of this. Yeah. And it, in the beginning, it was very harmonious. And I think everybody worked well together. At least it seemed that way to me in my youthful inexperience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, in the early days, they were like literally writing the episodes as they were coming out. Wow. And so you would record an episode and it would air, um, you know, two or three weeks later. Wow. Now they create episodes and it's yeah, like it's airs six months that. later. Um, but for oh, a while crazy. in the beginning, it was very much a, a pretty small operation. Wow. That's so cool. So, but I mean, the other episode that I listened to in preparation for, for this evening was at least I listened to the beginning first part of Aloha Oi, mm. which I mean, has always been actually growing up. That was like, I listened to that episode many times cause it was, it was funny. 
the show is really funny. Yeah. And like the, yeah, there's yeah. such fun dynamics between all those characters. And it's like this perfect tragedy of, okay, you think we're going to have a great family vacation? Crap. The Rathbones are coming with us. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, those are my favorite episodes to record probably ever. Uh, and the that was kind of the pinnacle of um, the experience of recording. Uh, a lot of, some, my character is very interesting. So what, the first year that I recorded, I played a lot of different characters. Yeah, okay. And then finally they needed to give me like a regular thing. Um, so they created the Barclays. And so a lot of the episodes I did tended to be kind of, uh, stuck with the same cast a lot of the time. Um, and this was also, I think when Will Ryan was, uh, striking the show, uh, cause they weren't union. Right. Um, and so, you know, never did episodes with Eugene. Um, and so it was kind of rare sometimes that we would get to work with some of the rest of the characters that existed in this fictional town of Odyssey. Um, you know, a lot of our episodes were really like family drama based, you know, brother yeah, and sister yeah, yeah. fighting. Oh, we think the parents are getting divorced. Oh, it's, you know, Thanksgiving, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. Um, and Aloha Oi was, it was notable for a couple of reasons. One, it was three episodes, yeah. which meant that I was going to get to record for at least two days, um, which for me was huge because I would, I would get a phone call and just, I, I, couldn't wait all month long. It was like, okay, I get to do it again. And I would spend all month in school, just miserable as shit. Just, just literally like watching the little secondhand like tick. Cause I knew each second was getting me closer and closer to the day when I don't have to come here and I can go to Burbank and record, um, and do the thing that I'm good at. And I did not realize at the time how, unwell I was. Um, I think one of the things that I'm going to jump around here a little bit. One of the things that I think makes me a good actor is the fact that I had been struggling with this problem my whole life. And you, you can't tell people that you feel like you want to die when you're 10 years old. Um, people look at you weird and you get in trouble. I remember one time drawing a picture of myself cutting my head off in the third grade and I got called into the principal's office. And so you learn at a young age how to fake it and how to, right. how to be something you're not. And so I think naturally there's this tendency towards acting. And so this is my only outlet. This is the only way I get to do it. I'm also really miserable in my life. And I think I was 16. So we're going through adolescence and all the chemical changes in the brain. And what was already here. Uh, after, difficult. Yeah. So like it's, we're, we've got this like, uh, like a storm brewing in this little kid. Right. Um, and when I would record that experience that you had performing the other day, that, that amazing feeling that you got a, a sense of purpose and a sense of, just like the stars aligning in your yeah, world yeah. and everything fits and feels good. And it's, it's just pure love coming out of you through this vehicle of music. Um, I would get to experience that. And then I would have this massive crash afterwards because now I have to go back to my regular life Yeah. and I'm an, and I'm a kid. So I don't really have any control over my life. 
Um, so it's not like I can, you know, go make a career out of this and, you know, sleep on a friend's sofa in North Hollywood, you know, I'm I'm stuck. Like I have to go back to school. Um, and so there were these three episodes, it was a three-parter and we got to do it with the actors who play the Rathbones at the time it was Walker Edmonston, um, and Steve Burns, Rodney, um, and a bunch of people that I didn't get to see a whole lot of. And these episodes were hysterical. Oh my God. Like the, it was some of the best timing, comic timing, comic oh, yeah. writing ever. Um, and it was transcendent. It was probably my favorite episodes to ever record. Probably. Um, just cause the actual experience of technically recording, that was such a great time. And then, I went home and didn't know if I'm going to hear from anybody ever again. It was always this question mark of, will I ever hear from you again? Mm. And at this point in my life, I've been working with these people for six years. And when you're 16, that's a significant chunk of your life. Like I see these people more than I see my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents. So in many ways, I'm I'm much more emotionally close to them than I am to my own family or, you know, Uh, But each time I leave the studio, I don't know if I'm ever coming back. And so I think in my like weird, uh, damaged way of thinking at that time, when you're symptomatic uh, and you're depressed, you're not thinking clearly. Uh, And I went home and some either in the next day or two, I tried to kill myself Uh, and took some pills and decided I was ready to check out. And that was about as good as it was going to get. And, uh, ended up in a mental health hospital for the first time, uh, hell of an experience. Um, and the interesting part about that was, I, when you check into the hospital, late at night they sneak you into your room so in an adolescent hospital it's true in an adult hospital too um you know they have these hallways with the rooms and there's like meeting rooms and where you're going to have your group therapy and there's you know maybe an eating area but kind of you it's almost like dorm style um you know so they sneak you into your bedroom in the middle of the night and some other person is in there already asleep i'm 10 you know 16 years old i'm out of my mind depressed and 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 it's a lockdown facility so you feel like you're in jail um and so they bring you in in the middle of the night and i woke up the next morning and i i opened the door to come out into the hallway for the first time and i'm i am terrified like i have no idea what's happening um and standing right in front of me is the actor who played rodney rathbone and jeez we had just recorded together and like it was one of these weird moments in life where you know the two people who are used to seeing each other in a particular environment (laughs) are now in a completely way different environment that isn't even at all attached to the prior environment um and i just remember looking at him and just being like what are you doing here you know i thought you were an actor and he gives me this look of like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, <laughs> like seriously, like when were, you were just in the studio, kid, like, what are you doing here? Be, and it was great. Uh, 
it was, you know, really weird to go from like this studio environment to suddenly like, here's this, you know, 16 year old kid fighting for his life. Um, and I would have to imagine from Steve's perspective, like, I, you know, I'd love to know what was going through his head. I, I couldn't even speculate. But so he was there as like a volunteer or like he worked at the at the place? I think he was a social worker okay. uh, because when my parents found out that he was there, uh, they then, you know, tried to get in contact with him. And I think after I was discharged from the hospital, we went to visit his offices once or twice. Okay. Because at that point, the other part element of this is like treating adolescents at this time for mental health. We're talking 1993, 1994. Um as shitty as mental health treatment is in this country right now, it was so much worse 30 years ago. And it was so much worse for adolescents. Like oh, I really shouldn't be alive right now. Um, Cause it was just horrific. But I, I think in that chaos and not knowing what to do, my parents are really smart about trying to like, you know, they did believe in that, you know, trust doctors, um, you know, they, it wasn't like, oh, let's just dip the kid in essential oils and he'll be fine. Um, they were, you know, they were scrambling to figure out what was wrong with their son. Like, and so he helped us out at one point. I don't remember what for, maybe he was an insurance claims adjuster. I don't remember, but, um, but yeah, it was like really weird. We went through like the most amazing recording session together. And then like two days later, we're meeting up in a mental health hospital in Anaheim. <laughs> but, you know, I, uh, I, I just wonder though, in, in that moment, were you looking up like, oh shit, I was hoping this was never going to have to come out for this group of people. This, Or was it like, was there some sense of comfort in like, okay. The- it was, it was very comforting to see a face I knew for sure. Yeah. But also it was probably the first time I ever experienced the fear of the shame. Mm-hmm. Um and that would be, that yeah, follows great. me to this day, the stigma around mental health. Um, and as, you know, my politics have changed and, you know, people say shit like, you know, oh, liberals, yeah, yeah. liberalism is mental illness. And as somebody with mental illness, um, the discrimination and a lot of the things that I've gone through. See, I, I, I had no idea when I bumped into him that morning what was going to happen for the rest of my life. Yeah. I was very much in shell shock denial. And I, the, my whole time in that hospital, I just kept saying to everybody, I was like, no, you guys don't understand. Like, I'm not as bad as you. And, you know, there were like kids who struggled with gang issues, with severe addiction. Like at that point, I'd never done a drug. I'd never had a sip of anything. Like I, I was straight laced little, you know, evangelical kid. And, you know, now I'm surrounded by kids going through abuse and, um, and just, I was in total denial of the severity of my problem. Kept thinking I didn't belong here. Um, and how do I get out? And, you know, the way to get out is just go along to get along and they'll let me go and, you know, faked it. But really I, I just, I had no way of, grasping the magnitude of the problem or that my entire life was about to change almost overnight. Um, And that denial persisted for a number of years as I would like, you know, go through these waves of like feeling better. Well, Hey, I'm not depressed now. See, it's just a one-time thing. Uh, You know, and then like the seasonal depression would kick in or life stress would kick in and boom, we're right back. Um, And so you have to like, fall multiple times um 
and kind of think learn, I, learn the flow of it. It's like, okay, we're doing it. Kind of. Yeah. Like, you know, so I, my second suicide attempt was like four weeks later and I ended up in another hospital. And then I had had a really massive suicide attempt when I was 17 um, that should have killed me and didn't. Uh, I, I think I took like way too much. And while they were pumping my stomach, my heart, stopped um and so it would be like that where uh, you know and then i now i'm in a county facility for two weeks and I, you know now i'm you know i'm smoking cigarettes and i'm starting to get into trouble and mm-hmm. it's not because like i'm a troubled you know like a kid trying to cause trouble it's just like i was a troubled kid mm-hmm. um and miserable all the time and i'm trying to find anything that's gonna feel better um, behavior that I understand now, but at the time I didn't. And then mixed in with that was like, this was the era when a couple of new drugs had hit the market, Paxil and Zoloft, SSRIs were starting to, they were determined to be like, this is the thing that's going to save everybody from depression. Mm. And they didn't realize that like, when you medicate adolescents, that our biochemistry is not an adult level. Um, and so I would be misdiagnosed and placed on like lithium for nine months, you know, gain all this weight then like, Oh, well maybe he's not schizoaffective anymore. I think he's bipolar. Let's put him on something else. And it was just, I was drugged so heavily for so long, uh, that, you know, if you weren't feeling shitty beforehand, you were certainly feeling shitty afterwards. Like, it's that it's pretty though? brutal. It's just like, uh, well, let's try this guy out. Kind of, yeah, kind of, because they don't know what's going to work or why. Right. Uh, and I think you know, Medicaid. We understand way more now, twenty-five years later. Um, a story I tell pretty regularly is, at one point, I was volunteering for a chapter of a, a mental health organization called NAMI. National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, which if you or a family member needs some help, they're a great organization to check out, NAMI.org. And I went to a, 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 like a weekend retreat uh, for, you know, mental illness and vendors and organizations. And, you know, how can we advocate for this problem better and legislate for it? And there was a gentleman there from a pharmaceutical company that, puts out one of the medications I was on back in 1994. This was like the year when I was medicated so heavily, I was drooling and I couldn't, a conversation like this would have been impossible. I could not keep a thought in my head for more than 30 seconds. It was like living in a constant cloud. It's very hard to explain. Uh, And I bumped into the guy and they're advertising for this med. And I was like, oh, I used to be on that. He's like, oh, yeah, when? And you know, I'm like, oh, 1994. And the dude just went pale. And like he starts looking around like he's suddenly not feeling comfortable about this conversation anymore. And it's because they now realize like they were way over medicating kids and like class action lawsuits. And, oh, you know, now the, the, the dosage is like a single digit percentage of what it used to be when I was a kid. Um, like he looked at me and I think he even said at one point, he's like, I'm surprised you're able to talk. 
<laughs> and like, I'm surprised you didn't have, we didn't give you irreversible brain damage. And Jeez. So my answer is, well, you may have, we just <laughs> don't know. Like, we'll, we'll find out. We'll see what maybe happens. this is what it looks like, right? Like, <laughs> but at the time, did you, you were, were you having any adverse effects to it or it was just like, Oh God. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm telling you like mental illness is bad enough medicating it is even worse. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely life-saving and I don't want to even joke around to people who might be on those medications to, to ever get off of them sure. uh, unless they're not working for you. Um, but the side effects were horrible. Uh, yeah. At one point I gained 70 pounds in like five months yeah. uh, that puts stresses on your body. Uh, also when you're 17 years old and you're trying to impress girls, not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would have nightmares. I would have my saliva glands stopped working for a year what? and I used to never have cavities. And then suddenly like right. my teeth are having to get yanked out of my head because they're rotting out because my saliva glands don't work. I would have tremors, muscle twitches. Uh, I would shake. Um, I mean like severe side effects from the medications. I don't remember being 18 or 19 or 20 and it's not because I was out partying because I was a mental health patient. Um, and during an era when I think the prevailing wisdom at the time was let's just medicate the shit out of these kids. And if they're zombies, they can't kill themselves. Right. So isn't that a victory? And, and yeah, I can sort of see the sense of it. Um, but the downside is that some of these medications actually will swing you to be more troublesome. And so, I mean, I was punching windows out. I was punching my fist through doors. At one point, my parents were going to put me away in a home uh, for troubled youth. Like, they were about ready to, they were literally prepared to send me away to this home. And I lucked out. It turned out that, like, my birthday fell just like whatever the framework was. And, like, I was going to turn 18. And they're like, ah, we can't, he would be an adult and could sign himself out. And so, but I was about to be institutionalized. And a lot of it was, yes, the mental health problems, but also the misdiagnosis of them. Hmm. And this was an era where, like, they weren't titrating people. So in titrating, for those who don't know, is you you gently go off a med while you very slowly bring a new med on. Right. With a lot of these psychiatric meds, they take a month to six weeks to figure right. out, A, does this med work? Then, B, does the level of the med work? And so sometimes it takes eight, nine months to determine, oh, you know what? This medication doesn't work. So yank it and here's five new things. Right. And so it, it was just like, like this. Affecting such you on such a deep level, like drugs, it's not like it's like it's just a food that we've sort of co-evolved with where it's like, okay, your body sort of knows how to respond to that. You're like making some pretty serious changes to a pretty complex system and hoping this is what's wrong. Yeah. No, it's it, and I mean... And when you're coming on and off of these medications, you can tell that they're medications for your brain because yeah. you'll suddenly get like, it's, a, it's almost like this electrical flash. Mm. Um, you can see it through your eye. Like wow. you can actually, it, it's Weird. like your brain gets zapped. I can't explain it other than that. Um, but it's very much like a sensation that it's both visual and internal and you can feel it. And it's like, it's like your synapses are misfiring. Do you have any sense uh, of like of almost dissociation where it's like, oh, that's just my brain doing something? But like, kind of, 
Yeah. And, and see mixed in with all of this too, is like, I was still in denial. Right. Like, yeah, well, that's what I, I, I don't like, what was your think sense I of came like, out what was going that on at that years. point? How did you, how did you think about yourself and what your situation, what was going on? <sighs> oh, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, at that point I was so miserable and so absolutely convinced that God hated because he's certainly not answering any of my prayers. And this is where like a lot of the disconnect of like, now I'm starting to see like people at church are treating me differently. Um, I had to leave high school uh, and graduate early, uh, but essentially basically drop out. Uh, My life was completely falling apart and it felt unfair. It felt like I had no control over it. It felt like I just wanted it to end. I I became more and more suicidal as time went on. Uh, I started self-mutilating. And the way I liken it is kind of to, you know, people will say things like suicide is selfish. Go back to 9-11 and remember the people that were jumping out of the building. You know, why? Why would healthy people who went off to work that day jump out of a building? And the answer is, is because there's an inescapable fire that's about to consume them and kill them. And so you either sit there passively and let it consume you, or you make a decision to end the suffering as painlessly as possible. And so I think in, in all of that chaos, my major thought constantly was, I just wanted to end it. I want this to end. It's awful. I'm spending most of my life. Yeah. And you observe it a little bit more clearly in like cancer patients or people who go through a health problem like that. But it's, I call it, you become a professional patient. You spend most of your time in doctor's offices and hospitals. You're constantly, you know, having your veins tapped so that they can see whether or not this medication level is healthy. Uh, You know, at one point my veins were so destroyed that a nurse came in and you know, it goes to stick the needle in and can't find the vein. So she's going to like wiggle it in your arm and still can't find it. And so then she pulls out and then puts it back in wiggle, 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 wiggle. Where is that silly little vein? And third time's a charm. Nope. Actually it's not a charm. Okay. You know what? Let's switch arms. Go to the next arm. All right. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. Can't find that vein either. Like, and you know, just that, that was your life is, 10 pill bottles on the counter and band-aids on your arm from drawing blood and appetite fucked up and sleep fucked up and twitching. And I can't remember your name and I can't remember what we were just talking about sleeping all day. And, and so at that point, like if you had given me a gun, Hmm. I would not be here. Like it just, was that it, almost, it was such that was such a miserable part experience of the reason was just like you didn't have access to something that could end it in a in a clean enough way say that again so, so that was literally part of what 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 prevented you know things from things from going oh, in that direction for sure not if I, I, it's one of the reasons i'm very anti-gun uh is that you know most mm-hmm. deaths with guns are suicide um I that, man. and yeah if i i know for a fact it even to this day if I own firearms, you know, there's a 
there's a chance about five days a year uh, I can be, you know, I was just suicidally depressed three or four days ago. So sometimes it, it comes out of nowhere, but for sure, if I had had easy access to quick solutions, I would have taken them. Mm-hmm. And what a shame that would be because most people when they're depressed aren't, they're not trying to end their life. They're trying to end the suffering yeah. and trying to end the pain. And so they don't recognize in that fucked up headspace that like, dude, the pain's temporary. Yeah, You'll get through this. Just go to sleep. You'll feel better tomorrow or a month from now or well, whenever. But when you're wondering. in the midst of this burning fire about to consume you, yeah, you're looking yeah, for a, things that are going to give you an exit and then hopefully not suffer on the way out. Like that was a big thing was always trying to figure out how could I do it without causing more pain hmm. uh, to myself and not even thinking about the pain it would cause others, but just, you know, I don't want to sit there and like slowly bleed out or something or, you know, um, so yeah, I think I was always looking for solutions that were pretty either quick or painless. What what and, what was the step like before that kind of you get you slipping into that planning mode? Is it just like losing sight of a version of the story that leads to anything better or like wh- how cuz I mean I I've I've had moments in my life where I felt deeply deeply depressed. Mm-hmm. I, I think as far as my frame of reference it felt like it just it felt horrible horrible horrible. But I and I, I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's like we talk about depression and it, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of an annoying word at this point because we've, we've like, it's, it's this emotion that everybody experienced, but then it's also mixed up in, you know, in a discussion about a, a serious mental condition as well. For sure. And it's like, but so when we talk about depression, it's like, it's like everybody's experienced getting, I, I assume anyways that everybody's experienced, but it's like you can get to this deep low place, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't for everybody go all the way down to that place of, okay, this actually just has to end. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know, I don't know why it is because sometimes it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, sometimes you're, you're just, you're at a terrible place and life feels mm-hmm. totally meaningless. I, I, I had a lot of moments as, as a kid growing up where it's like, where for some reason I, my brain went to that existential place and it was just like, sure. life is meaningless. I don't know why yeah. I'm alive. This sucks. I, I think everybody experiences, I, that is a common experience that we are all going to have in our lives is a feeling at some point of depression. And how do we separate? And what I would call circumstantial depression, grandma dies, your dog got run over by a car, a relationship ends, a job gets lost. uh, You go through an injury or something or trauma. uh, So that everybody at some point in their life is going to experience depression. And one of the things that I even thought of as, as a teenager is I remember thinking, because I had that question, I was like, well, how is this different? Doesn't everybody go through a, a mental health crisis at some point in their life? And what we realize now is, yes, everybody at some point in their life is going to have a mental health crisis. You're going to be depressed at some point. Um, you know, might be a response to a cancer diagnosis. Um, and for most people, these problems are going to be short term and temporary. Uh, and they're, you know, our bodies are designed to, or have evolved or designed or whatever language you want to use to process emotions. We have an emotional uh, makeup for a reason, especially as an actor, I, I'm pretty in tune with emotion. Um, and emotion is our way sometimes of processing a lot of things. So 
depression is a normal part of that. Same with fear, anger, happiness, joy, bliss. Um, the difference is severity and duration. And what I would classify as kind of the, the symptom cornucopia. Uh, so with massive, you know, major depressive disorder, you're going to be a lot less functional for longer. Um, and things like that, you know, obvious signs are, you know, people who sleep too much or they sleep too little or they eat too much, their diet changes, their hygiene changes, their ability to take care of themselves in the day to day um, becomes really big and massive uh, problems that they can't escape from. Um, and executive function, a lot of the times when I'm symptomatic, it's hard for me to articulate my thoughts. It's hard for me to do very simple tasks. Um, an example of that, that I've incorporated, and, and you know, I have 25 years of dealing with this problem, you find little solutions. So an example of that is every morning when I wake up, I have a quick double espresso and my breakfast is the same thing every single day. It's two granola bars and a glass of milk. And the reason it's that is because I don't have to make a decision. Hmm. And a lot of the time when I'm symptomatic, making a simple decision, like what to eat in the morning, yeah. I will stare at the refrigerator for four hours and then wonder why I'm grumpy and in a bad mood. And well, it's because I've got food in me and my blood sugar's low. But the real problem is that I'm symptomatic and it's, I can't make decisions. Yeah. Um, and so when we're viewing the difference between sort of short-term circumstantial depression, which everybody's going to go through in their life versus a much more severe clinical form of it that's life-threatening, I think it's, how do you get to that point? It's that you never come out of it, I guess, is a way that I might describe it in this moment in time. It never gets better. So you never get that like clear period of upswing. Um, I have a brother that's bipolar. And one of the things he's always said to me over the years, because I always tell him, I'm like, man, at least I'm not bipolar. And he's like, at least I'm not depressed. You know, I, I at least get to be manic and blow all my money and end up in jail. You're just miserable all the time. Like that sucks. And I'm like, I know it does suck. And he's like, you should kill yourself. And I'm like, I know. Like, because you know, there's no upswing. It's just, that's not to say there aren't good days or that I don't experience joy and pleasure, but that compared to in the nature of your question, like what's the difference between circumstantial versus like a, a severe disorder? I think the answer is the length of it. And it just doesn't really ever give you a moment to breathe. And it's so persistent and so obtrusive that it's, I can't think about anything else. Right. And I'm also exhausted all of the time. And so, so then I'm so exhausted and tired, all the rest of my life starts falling apart. Right. And then it becomes this giant snowball problem. Cycle. And then the only way to get out of it is suicide or self-harm or some kind of, um, you know, alcoholism, drug abuse, all of the things that are pretty typical with, folks who have suffered through these kinds of problems. And so I, I think a way you can, if you've ever asked yourself, am I struggling with this problem? I think it, there's a difference between wishing you didn't have problems versus actively thinking about how to end the situation. 
Mm-hmm. And when you start really idealizing what they call suicidal ideation, um, it's one thing to be like, oh, I wish I wasn't alive. It's a whole another thing to be like, well, you know, if I walked out across the train tracks right now, you know, now we've jumped from feeling sad to like, mm-hmm. okay, now you're a threat to yourself. And we've we've gone into a, a very different category. Is is it is there any overlap though in that? Because I mean, there's there is this weird kind of thing that pops into. I don't know if this is everybody, but at least my own experience, mm-hmm. it's like whenever I think I'm it's everybody. Top of a building, what you're about to say, or okay, or or standing by train tracks, I do I do have that thought. It's like hmm, I wonder. I mean, I could just go stand in front of that right now. And it's sure. not like that deeply connected to anything else. It's just like, yeah, I could sure. do that. And you really play that situation out in your head. And you're like, you, you're almost like, sometimes I get afraid. I'm like, am I going to do this? Am I going to open this? the door? I remember as a kid, I would be in the back of a car and I'd like, yeah. I would sit there just like. You're so afraid. Like, I might, I might jump out. I'm ga- I don't know. I'm going to open the door right now. And I, <laughs> I like, I would feel this impulse to open the door and I would just sit there for like a half hour. Like, why am I not opening the door? Cause I know. And like, it was this yeah. weird thing. So I think some of that is normal. I think really it becomes about <sighs> severity and behavior. And like, there's people who have low grade depression and it's serious, but they're able to function and have a good life. Uh, or at least not have a terrible life. And I think for me, you add into the fact that I, I also have severe obsessive compulsive disorder and I also have a panic disorder mm-hmm. and the way these three things interplay puts depression on steroids. So a, a problem that I have is when I'm feeling sad, I can't get out of it because my obsessive brain keeps me like stuck in this loop of destruction and it is is, really hard to get out of that what is the obsessive Um, compulsion aspect what does that look like i mean i i obviously hear that for me around but yeah but i i don't i mean i haven't i don't think i've obviously we were talking about earlier i i live in a mess a lot of times and that's in a and sometimes that's like a comfortable space for me and then sometimes i'll just Mm -hmm. go escape from that go somewhere where it's clean but is i mean is even making that analogy to clean space versus messy space is that even (laughs) sort of i so like i i need order uh but you know one of my parents is obsessive compulsive and is a a compulsive hoarder and like piles of shit and so it's there's different ways other people uh some forms of obsessive compulsive disorder you know a really famous one is uh oh what's his name howard hughes you know, and here's somebody who, like, at the end of his life, wouldn't cut his fingernails or cut his hair or, you know, bathe or anything like that. It, it has weird ways of expressing itself. Um, one of them is through, like, religious ideation. Like, uh, it's one of, like, in the British DSM, uh, one of the things they observe is that with a lot of obsessive compulsives, there's, like, an overly religious component to it. Um, because about the rules and you've got to stay rigid mm. for other people. It's like obsessive cleaning. Uh, for me, it, it comes about in intrusive thinking thoughts. I don't want to have, which used to drive me crazy as a kid. And in church, there was no answer for other than like you're a sinner or you're demon possessed. Mm. And, you know, I couldn't figure out how to stop thinking things. I literally could not like, um, turn my brain off. And so for me, like one of the ways it comes up is I have terrible insomnia. Uh, Right. As I go to bed, 
that's when my brain is suddenly the most active. And I know everybody sometimes goes through that, but for me, it's literally a curse. Like I can't fall asleep until like nine o'clock in the morning. And when you're working, that doesn't work very well. Other ways, my obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, affects my life would be, I tend to get agitated if something that I had planned for goes awry or there's something unexpected in my day. I can get really angry or really just like uh, explosively frustrated. Um, I think it also has shown up a lot in like substance abuse disorder that I've struggled with. Um, So it's, it's very common for people in the mental health game to become cigarette smokers or, you know, especially especially as a kid going through it, you get so used to being drugged and like those drugs don't make you feel good that then you try and go to this other stuff. And as an obsessive compulsive, sometimes that can be a really dangerous trap. Um, cause you know, Oh, Hey, this worked once. Let's do it again. And you can become addicted like real fast, Hmm. um, which has happened. Um, I think other ways obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, sometimes like I, I will wear the same clothes and I can't get out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I have certain like behaviors that exist beyond sort of what the media portrays as, you know, we think of obsessive compulsive disorder as monk, uh, you know, this character who just everything has to be perfect. And, just so and yeah, that's one part of it. Another part of it could be some people are germaphobic um, and, you know, compulsively wash their hands. I, I one of my earliest memories actually is as a kid, I must have been three or four, yeah. having pancake syrup on my hand oh, and man. making oh, the geez. decision to go and wash my hands um, at the age of like three or four tapping and, and trying like to reach up over the counter because otherwise I would have to right sit now, there and yeah. wait for the adults to come by. And like whenever there was anything sticky or gummy on my hands, I would just like, <sighs> like, okay, what, what do I do? Like, and so that that exists to this day. Like I don't, you notice, like I don't wear jewelry. I don't thing. like, you know, I, I'm very quick to like wash my hands. Um, but the way it'll play in with like, say, a panic attack is I'll be in the middle of a panic attack, which a typical panic attack lasts about 30 minutes. For me, a panic attack can last 12 hours Jeez. or sometimes days because yeah. the obsessive compulsive part of the brain like keep, just keeps it going. How, and how, so how do those interplay? It's like you, it's like, I mean, in this loop, I can't get out of it or, or mm-hmm. like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. Like I will get the heart palpitation sensation that I'm having a heart attack and my arm will go numb yeah. and I'll be absolutely convinced I'm having a heart attack. This has happened to me so many hundreds of times and each time it feels completely different. It feels like a physiological response. A lot of people have learned to know that I'm going through a panic attack because one of the ways they'll see it is I'll be checking my pulse because <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I'm dying. And like, right. you know, or I'll come up to somebody and be like, oh, do I look okay? And they're like, yeah, you look fine. I'm like, are you sure? I'm, I, don't, I don't look like I'm dying right this second. But I can't, I will feel the tightness in my chest, the inability to breathe. Yeah, yeah. And then the fear of dying which is bizarre as a suicidal person. (laughs) So like, I want to die, but I'm terrified of it. And like, but, and then you just get trapped in like this endless loop for hours. And uh, it took several years to figure out how to like 
work through that. It that was a brutal, brutal experience because it's it's like a panic attack on steroids. And then the depression kicks in, and you're like, if I have yeah. to live this way for the rest of my life, fuck this. But <laughs> <laughs> and does that like so? I mean, look kind of looking back at your life and trying to just figure out the story of where where you came from and how it is that you got that you are now. I mean. Every time sure. I try to do that, and I, I've been doing that more, I mean, it's something you start to do, I think probably more just as a young adult, you start to kind of look at your life and think, who am I? What is it that I'm doing? For and sure. like looking at my own life and, and seeing where I came from, I mean, I, I don't know if you, if I told you this before, but like I grew up on the road nine, nine to 10 months a year. My, I was deep in the evangelical thing too, my, um, but like it was, it was on the side of it, like my grandparents, actually my great grandfather, he, he was the one who started doing this. He was like a... He, w- he was a preacher and like he would even help with the with the worship team and then it was my grandparents and that would became like that, that was like I think even one of the ways like w- one of the core parts of their relationship is that they they did the music together right my, my, sure. my grandpa played the uh, the trombone and my grandma played the piano and they sang these hymns and it was like it was just it was working it was landing and like mm-hmm. and so I mean they they did this they went on the road and, and like that was I was born into a a three generation line of okay our thing is that we go around and we play christian music and we spread the spread the word of god you know and we we, sh- we share the gospel message and- one of the interesting things about this interview that i have been excited about is like the thing you and i share and and i've thought about this for so many years over my life there's so few people i've ever actually talked to about it you're one of the few people, I don't think I've ever been interviewed by somebody who also had their childhood exploited for adult <laughs> religious purposes. Like, like, there's not a lot of people that understand that. It's it's a very unique experience. Well, uh, and especially like, <laughs> and I mean, you've been through it too. So like, and yeah. I don't mean that in a, like a negative well, sure. connotation, I mean, but just a literal really, one. Like, both of us have processed this. Is like, I look back and I see what was happening and I see where my grandparents and my great-grandparents and where my parents' hearts were at and what they were trying to do. And it was like, mm-hmm. I have so much respect for that. It's like they were sure. trying to do the thing that they thought was the best thing that they could do with their lives, right? Sure. And it's like it's not like I have such a, a deep revelation of what it is that, that humans are supposed to do that I could even deeply argue with that. I mean, there's different ways in which my life seems meaningful to live to me, but it's like, you know, good on you guys for trying to trying trying to do something with your lives and trying to do something meaningful. Like that for that's sure. something I can I can appreciate and try to live off of and try to, you know, continue with. But you know, so so but as far as doing that and then having, yeah, you know, being a kid growing up on the road and like doing what my parents were doing. It's like, okay, I obviously I don't get to make a choice here. You don't get to opt out. <laughs> I don't get to opt out. I mean, I'm a kid. So I, you know, I figured out, eventually figured out something where I could do, oh, I guess I could play drums. And I mean, I, yeah. that, that was, it was like, I, I'm a very social person. I love talking to people. I love, one of the deepest motivations I have in life is just like, you know, I, I, I can convince myself to do almost anything if it, if it had, if it's in some way related to a community or in some related right. to a group and like, you know, being a part of that thing. Like I, I hated reading books until I joined a book club with my friends. And it's like, now it's like, I read books all the time. It's like, I, I just, I just need to be part of something. And so like, I mean, when I, when I figured out how to, you know, well, I mean, I guess I, I didn't, I didn't get to experience that as deeply as I, as I wanted to growing up. I, I really wanted mm. to have real friends. I wanted to have friends sure. in person, but traveling around i didn't get to kind of that. kills that yeah yeah so it I becomes mean, very much like your family is your social circle yeah and so uh, I, mean, I had 
pretty strong relationships with with a lot of my family members, but I had this this I I, I was listening to a, a guy recently that I've just started to kind of get to know, and he's he's a he's a great lecturer um, at the university about an hour away from me in Toronto. But I, I've been listening, and he introduced me to this great word, domicide, which deeply resonated with me, which is the idea hmm. of your home dying, basically, or like feeling like your all your sense of home and your sense of like mm-hmm. of where you belong has has died, and it's like you just don't know where you fit. And I really that that domicile that, that that's something that I really that that's the word I was looking for to describe how I felt growing up because it was like okay. I mean, I had these key moments. I figured out how, how to like play some music and I was able to do that with my family, but I was not able, I, I, I did not have a sense of home and I really, mm-hmm. really missed that. And I felt very lonely. I and couldn't like, identify with that for sure. Cause that, I think moving a lot as a kid, cause I, we moved multiple times. Yeah. Um, feeling kind of like I don't fit into whatever culture I'm supposed to be in. Yeah. I think also as, as like, the child actor thing hit, I, I had fewer and fewer peers. And then when the mental health thing hit, I had fewer and fewer peers. Um, and I would say most of my life, even though I'm a very social person who, you know, I've always had a lot of friends or, you know, acquaintances, I've always felt very lonely because the, with this weird path I'm on, there's not a lot of people who have been on it as well. Or, you know, I think one of the ways that we bond with other humans is through shared experiences. And your experience is pretty damn unique. There's not a lot of kids that go through what you did unless, you know, maybe you get around the circus community (laughs) or, and I I literally like, you know, these families that like, this is what they do. They have a family tradition of like performing. That was kind of one of my problems was that we didn't have a family tradition of performing. And I was the first one and my whole family did not like it. They very much like they didn't trust that world. They were concerned about it. Um, And so there's always been a sense of displacement that I felt because I don't feel like I have peers that have have a shared experience with me. Even the original kids on that show, they all went on to have really wonderful, nice white evangelical lives. Like I'm the black sheep that like went this other path. And so, and then even as child actors, like in the Hollywood system, because we're like Christian performers, we don't really fit in with any of that crowd and there's no support system for us when we age out. And so I've had this like weird, I I see what you mean. Like the, that domicide sensation of like, what is home? Right. What? And then, so then you would think like, well, home's just wherever I am. Well, okay. Now you're a mentally ill person and you can't (laughs) trust yourself. Where's home? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and one of the ways that sort of met, like my my coping mechanisms was just to like basically, I, I guess it's just I, I had so it's like I I feel like it's part of like what home is is it's, it's like the forces that like I mean even like you talked about your breakfast it's like it's just the pattern that surrounds you and that like makes mm-hmm. up your life it's like the predictability of your life or even like the almost the rules of your life or the authority of your life. Right. There can be a huge comfort when you have an authority that you really trust. But when you don't have that, it like it it feels like it's just up to you. And that that's really I, I obviously I, I don't want to compare where, you know, what I've experienced. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to no, like, okay. but like No, 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 no. Your life is your life story, man. Sure. Speak it. <laughs> but I mean, I, I've had I guess I just I, I had a lot of issues with 
with control or with 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 mm-hmm. authority figures. And I really, oh, and, yeah. like I said, as I was trying to like tell the story of my life and look at where I'm at, I, I that that connected for me where it was just like okay. When all of this sense of home, this sense of trust, and the sense of stability is gone, it's like mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can trust anybody. It's 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 yeah. all up to me. And so then it be, that then there's this really deep pressure to like control everything and make my life be what it needs to be. For sure. And like, uh, like I, I I wanted to. I just was wondering how. I mean, if you relate to that, and if you feel like that connects to that impulse to like to put everything in order, and this sort of this compulsive, you know. Absolutely. I think one of the the key words of my entire life is control. Mm. Um, And that I've never felt like I was in control of anything. Um, And that's not to pass the buck. That's just that I've never, I've always felt like life happened to me and that I was not as much of a, an engineer of the decisions of the things that occurred. Um, and I've mostly been reacting from one problem to the next. So a good example of that would be when I was 23, I was leaving the set of a film and I was in a car accident that wrecked my back and I couldn't walk for a year and a half. And that was a good example of a thing that happened to me that I didn't cause that like was dropped into my world or into my life. You didn't choose to grow up on a bus away from your home nine months out of the year, not going to school with all your friends in the neighborhood. It was this thing that was like put on you. It was out of your control. Yeah. Um, it's why it was hard for me when Adventures and Odyssey, when they wrote me out of the show, it wasn't that they were just like putting an end to the character. They were putting an end to me is how I, I felt was like, wait a minute, you all are my friends. You're my family. These adults that I've been around for 10 years, this is, this, and this is where it did become home for me. Mm-hmm. It very much became like a, a very close, intimate, familial thing that where I trusted these people. Oh, now you're written off. Bye. And like, oh, you're yeah. taking it away from me. I, I don't have any control over this. It's not like I'm making a career decision to move on. Right. Um, so I'm when, not when making did that happen. Like, uh, like, how old were you? And, and how did you I mean, did, did that set, set in motion a, a big spiral again? I think at that point I was already spiraling. So when I had, I had, I went through like three suicide attempts in the span of a year from the age of 16 to 17. And then I was just a mess from like 18 through 20. Um, and I recorded a couple of times. I think a number of things were happening behind the scenes that I didn't understand were going on. Number one, they finally found a new Mr. Whitaker. Right. right. Um, and after Hal died, they were they leaned on our characters, especially the Barclays, quite a yeah. bit because we we still sold albums, um, <laughs> and we were like an easy you know like cha-ching yeah. um, as they're you know going on this three year search. Then also they finally decided to go union. Well, they had been using me as non union talent for ten years, and whoops. Um, so I think there, like a decision was made like, okay, let's put an end to the old era right. and then we'll start hiring like trained actors and, and things like that. And so, yeah, I had no warning. I was 20. Um, I, they brought me in for this episode and I see the name wit on the script for the first time in like years. Like it was, and I was like, Oh my God, something has changed. Yeah. Um, and then Chuck Boltier, whoever, you know, I'm reading through this. I'm like, wait a minute. What do you mean we're moving out of Odyssey? 
oh, well, you know, we're going to do a spinoff series with you guys. And I like, I knew it was bullshit, but mm. you know, we're going to, you know, like we're going to create a show just for you. Maybe they thought that for a minute. Um, but I also, th- I, 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 I also did, I did suspect that like they that. knew that I must've been going through some issues. Cause I had, I had said to one of the writers, Hey, you guys should do an episode about this depression stuff. Yeah. Like this is totally like wigging out my world. And, you know, I'm going through massive weight gains and I think, you know, I'm, I'm also like 17 years old and going outside and smoking a cigarette. I'm sure like the adventures and odyssey crew, like they're just like, Oh my God, what's happened to this kid? <laughs> that that, that like, alone, it was already like this. We can't work with this guy. This is this right. Is like I th- I'm sure they felt, you know, that I was, uh, a blight on their, you know, messaging of, you know, Mr. Whitaker is going to make kids grow up to be good adults. And here's like Jimmy Barkley's killing himself, burning himself with cigarettes, cutting himself, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol because he's depressed and miserable and doesn't, and doesn't want to live. And I would have to assume a decision was made at some point to like distance themselves. Yeah. Um, But it broke my heart and it, 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 you were taking it was this it was the one good thing i had it was the one thing i knew i could do that and i didn't get a lot of confirmation from anybody else so like there were no fans around they never let us know like that fans listen to the show really um i i wasn't getting paid exorbitant amounts of money it was one-time session fees i, I didn't even know residuals were a thing that actors got um we surely didn't get them so there was no real confirmation that like i was good at this and this was the only real outlet that i had um and so when i got written out it was definitely a death for me it was very very much um a sense of like like well there's nothing left and the years that would follow that i was very much kind of what you describe of like that like homeless almost, you you know, even though like I've got housing with my family or, um, but something is amiss. There's no ability for me to even feel good anymore. Um, and I think that it's not so much that I spiraled at that point. I was already at the bottom of the barrel and I just think I existed there for a very long time. Uh, you know, tried to get myself, out of the barrel multiple ways. Sometimes you try and climb out of the barrel. Sometimes you try and drown yourself in the bottom of it um, or set it on fire in the hopes of like self-immolating. But you're, and in the mental health game, you're so fucked in that position. Yeah. Uh, The one thing you'll learn if you ever have the, the unfortunate experience of going through mental illness is just how truly like, crap the entire world will treat you um as a white upper middle class evangelical person in america i had all the privilege you could possibly have and one of the few ways you can completely lose that privilege is through a mental health diagnosis Mm -hmm. Uh, and going on disability in this country if you're on disability they force you into abject poverty because god forbid sick people not live in constant stress um and so it just and then just everything sucks and so like no one wants to help you and that was really what started to change my politics um 
where suddenly a lot of the promised things in this white evangelical culture, uh, now that I was dealing with this health problem, yeah. all the narratives I had been taught in my life about the way the world worked, they were like blowing up one by one. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the examples I give is I had been told all of my life, taxes are bad, taxes are theft, um, and government, what is it Reagan said in the 80s, like the 13 worst words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> and, um, but the reality was that uh, all the systems, you know, this idea that like, oh, it's, you know, government doesn't solve problems, charity does. It's a heart problem, right? Mm. Um, but when you get sick like this, there is no charity. Charity ain't there for you. The church, they ain't interested in helping you out. Um, and, I, and I learned that real, real fast. When I saw other people in my church get sick, the church would jump around them. We would have meal teams. The men would get together and like go do the yard work. The ladies would come together and go over to the house and help with the home. Do you think that has uh, to do with this sense of like, because one of the things, as I, again, as I've been trying to self-analyze a little bit and look at where I came from, look at my tradition, is I think evangelicalism, that version of Christianity, what drove it was this sort of results loop of like, okay, we got this many souls saved. We did this much, you know, we were able to hand out this many tracts or what, whatever. There's sort of these commodities that sort of give us, sure. a, uh, you know, this point system of like, oh yeah, look, look at this success that we can, we can see and we can write down this success we're making for the kingdom. Sure. But the reality of dealing with, you know, with life is that you have problems that stick around and you have no idea when the fuck they're going away. And some of them are really not pretty problems and they're not, and some of them are not going to be solved period. Yeah. And what do you do? And a, a thing that's very, frustrating for people in that evangelical system is when they're confronted with something that they can't answer. Um, and so a lot of for years, years, I would, because you're trained in that system. When you have a problem, where do you go? Right. You go to your church elders, you go to your pastor, you go to your youth pastor. These are the people you have been told are the ones that are going to guide you and give you good information and help you. Yeah. But what if your problem doesn't exist in the Bible? You know, like, and that was the thing that I kept running up against again and again and again. It's like, you know, they would go to the Bible and they'd be like, well, uh, uh, here's the part where Jesus like threw the demons out of the guy who's foaming at the mouth. Is that your problem? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, no, God, no, I don't here? think so. We, we could cast so, you know, demons into some pigs. Let's, let's try that. <laughs> Yeah, there were, you know, that story I would always get told, God, the number of times people would tell me about Job. Oh, my fucking God. Like, just, <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting there like, have you read this? Have you read this thing that you're trying to teach me to read? This is horrible. Like, this is it, God and the devil made a bet. Yeah. And, like, and God said, yeah, go ahead and destroy this dude's life. Yeah. He's going to still worship me. And at the end of it, when Job's life is totally destroyed, he's like, yo, God, why? And God's just like, eh, it was Tuesday. 
<laughs> and it's like when you're mentally ill and you're 18 years old and you're trying to like find peace of mind mm-hmm. in, in a in a, a mind that is suffering the answers that that system has to give you are utterly pointless and it's it, it, the intention is good i i don't i want to be clear you know i'm not i don't want to take shots at like the concept of christianity that's not something that it, I, I that's a different conversation we can have later <laughs> but i think one of the things that i observed in the process of being a patient with these kinds of problems is that the system of the white evangelical thing that exists in this country specifically um, was incredibly toxic when I would reach out for help. And, you know, built into some of this stuff is like a system of thought where like, oh, the world's inherently bad. It's never going to get better. Yeah. Um, oh, there's like a real fatalistic thinking there's a constant, like you mentioned it earlier, this like persecution complex in this American form of this, right. where like, oh, the government's out to get us, everybody's out to get us. And so there's this like really defensive, really toxic uh, conceptualizing of everything. And if you have the misfortune to have a life issue that goes against what this system yeah. is set up for, um, See, to me, it's the system of the white evangelical thing in America. It, it's more than chick tracks and um, evangelizing. To me, as I got further and further removed from it, because I kind of got divorced from it with my health problems. Sure, sure. But that gave me like a, a weird opportunity to kind of look at things with a, a fresh eye. When you're growing up in a system, you can't look at it from a fresh eye. You, you are inundated with it. Um, and so when I was kind of pushed out of it and looked back at it, I, I saw a lot of the structural damage and that, wait a minute, there's something not healthy here. This, this seems to be less about saving souls and much more about voting and much more about Christian capitalism and much more about like, oh, that what you're describing is not convenient for our narrative. Yeah. And so it, we're not going to tell you to leave, but we're really not going to ask you to stay. Um, and it's, it, and that, like, that was the first thing that I noticed was like, I was told there was going to be charity and there isn't any, where is it? I was told that private business was going to take care of this and that the goodness of Christians, they were going to come through for me and that I couldn't rely on the government, that I can rely on my family and my friends and my community and my church. Every single institution failed me, every last one, because the problems of some a young person with mental illness are so huge, no one group can help. It's a, you know, your average age of getting schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, major depression usually occurs around college age before people have a career, before they can pay into the system. Um, You're going to, and you're going to be unhirable. And you're fucked and you're 20. And um, that's really inconvenient for churches because they rely on you going to their coffee shop and buying all their books at their bookstore yeah. and making sure that you're paying the bills for this giant mega church with lasers and light systems yeah. and stage, state of the art AV. Um, 
And I started learning like there's a difference between the system that I was growing up in and now this problem that I have, these two things like don't right. flow together and either they're wrong or I am. Yeah. Right? Like either and I obviously I'm trying to kill myself and obviously I'm struggling with all of these problems. So clearly I'm wrong. And I went with that narrative for a very long time and I was right. super self-destructive got the scars on my body and in my life to show for it. Um, And then one day it was like the light went on and I was like, wait a minute, this isn't, the problem isn't me. I have problems, but the problem is that I don't fit in this system because this system is not actually something that's, I feel something that's designed to help people. I think it's designed to push an agenda. Um, But as a, I would have never been able to see that if I hadn't come down with this specific set of problems. Uh, so it was a very interesting, horrific journey. I wouldn't wish it on everyone, anyone, but I kind of wish it on everybody because when you go through something like this right. and you lose your privilege and you, you learn to be poor, like um, I had never lived in poverty until I got on disability. Well, therefore, I didn't understand any of the problems with poverty. I didn't understand systemic racism in this country. I didn't understand a lot of this stuff because I grew up in these really safe church bubbles. Um, And, you know, where, you know, oh, if we're going to be missionaries, we go to some third world poor country that doesn't speak English, you know, a mission for Jimmy, um, (laughs) you know, right? Like. You know, not let's go to Detroit and fix things, but, you know, let's make sure we go to like a, a, yeah. a country where the natives need to hear from, you know, the, the good news. Yeah. And it's like people are suffering here. Kind of built into this, like, well, we're, we're good here. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. Yeah. America. Great. Good country. You know, Jesus country. Woo-hoo. Mm-hmm. And man, you know, the, the number of times I've heard over the last 25 years, we have the best healthcare system in the world. Bullshit. I've been in that healthcare system. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a crime against humanity. I mean, um, I, I and complain for patients about my dental bills like me, they they just lock us up. Like, that's something that doesn't work in the Canadian system. We have to we have to pay for our dental. But yeah, I've, I mean, I I don't have this this anxiety about like okay, if I need to go to the hospital, uh, I should be prepared to be poor now. But like that I hear from my American friends like, oh, yeah, I went, you know, I went to the hospital. I waited six hours and they gave me a little painkiller pill and that cost me three grand. And I'm like, yeah, what on earth? How? Yeah. How, well, how do you yeah. even yeah. rationalize ever going to the hospital in that? Environment? You don't. That, so you have this is where like my sick friends don't go to get care. I yeah. the number of times I have wanted in the last decade to check myself into a mental health hospital for a week just so I could chill out just because I started getting nervous about myself yeah. and there's nowhere to go. Uh, so the reason I'm on disability, it's not because I'm, I mean, I am disabled 24 seven, but I can function a lot of the time. Um, but the reason I'm on disability is so I have Medicare and, you know, in, in the cruelest twist of fate, um, I, because of the work I did as a child actor, I was credited with a certain level of like commerce Mm -hmm. and whereas like if I, if I hadn't worked as a kid um, I would have gone in the American system on, on just straight into social security. Um, And like my brother has that he basically from the moment he was an adult, he was already disabled. So he never, he's on a much more stringent version. 
anyways, long story short, I'm stuck on disability so that I have the healthcare. And because I worked as a kid, the payout they give me per month is less than $800. So I, I live on less than $10,000 a year because I have to keep that healthcare. Because if I go into the hospital for two weeks, it's 50 grand. If I, and so like I've been handcuffed into poverty because we have this philosophy in this country that like sick people and poor people, we can't give them anything, you know, cause then they'll just be lazy. Um, which I can promise you as somebody who's been on, on public welfare for the last 20 years, I've never been lazy a day in my life. Like the number of things that I do uh, would shock most people, but I'm economically like stuck in this system. Right. Um, and the people who advocate the most for it, the white evangelicals, right. like this supposedly like loving, caring people are the most likely to vote for these really draconian, brutal yeah. systems. They, they somehow we've married the message of Jesus Christ with this like really crazy Ayn Rand libertarian, like everybody yeah. for themselves, fuck the poor, fuck the sick. That's their fault. Bad life choices. That way I can be like pilot and wash my hands of any responsibility. Right. Um, and and it's a very cruel nation that we live in. So I, I learned that too, was like, not only did I have this problem that was just like, I was born into, it didn't ask for, didn't do anything to exacerbate it. It happened to me, but then I'm now stuck in a country and in a culture that is just like, bye, see you. Yeah. Like, um, no one, no one gives a damn. And, and that's hard when you're surrounded by people like claiming the love of Jesus Christ yeah. and the Holy Spirit. And you're just sitting there like they're pissing all this money away on the things. And you're like, hey, hey, can, can I go to a restaurant with my friends? You know, no, no, you're <laughs> you must be poor and miserable, dependent. Like it's, yeah. it's a really fucked up system here. And I mean, but driven I by the most sanctimonious people. Yeah. Well, and, and but like as I look back and I see, because it, there's a part of me that as I you know as I process the the more negative parts of 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 growing up in the tradition that I did, there's a part of me that wants to be able to kind of sim simply tie it up and say you know that was the bad stuff and we're done with that now. <laughs> and it's like, but no matter where I go, I, I find the same problem of of it's like you need you need to have this sort of story about where you're going in reality and how you're dealing with life's problems, and it, and you usually there's an impulse to kind of wrap that up into some like greater cosmic story about where where the world where everybody's going, and it's like I mean, and I look at I look at the the evangelical culture that you know that was you know that was where I came from. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, especially the more libertarian leaning ones, it's like, okay, they, they must, I, I, it's even talking to these people, it's like, okay, they had this sense of disenfranchise, disenfranchisement with like their, the system around mm -hmm. them, the, the values weren't lining up. They felt like they were being taken advantage of or take, like they were going to be like fooled or like, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I had this conversation so many times about like evolution and things like that, which seems like such a mm -hmm. inert, like who cares about that topic? But to them, it's just like, right. there's, there's, there's people out there that are trying to take the thing that's the most important to me, which is this like this deep story about meaning and about, and about love and about, you know, about redemption and about, you know, life's being changed through Christ's love. Somebody's trying to delete that with this new science stuff. And so get that away from me. We have to 
get into this defensive mode and just keep that evil stuff away from us. And it's like, mm-hmm. and like, you know, life gets messy and, and your, your story gets mixed up with, with, with lies and with, but it's like, but it's, it's tied to stuff that is like the most meaningful stuff to you. So it's like, how do you figure sure. it out? Right. So the, like one of the things that I started doing, uh, one of the beautiful parts, if I could even dare to say that of being mentally ill <laughs> is you are forced at a young age to question everything. Hmm. And that is a gift that I did not appreciate at the time. And it is a gift in really awful packaging. It's not a, it's not a gift that tastes good, yeah. but it, in a way it was very liberating um, because when you are forced to contend with the fact that your brain might be lying to you, Hmm. You really spend, and you're an obsessive compulsive, so you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, I have dedicated tens of thousands of hours to that kind of question because I had to answer that question for myself. What's real? Right. And when in the in this white evangelical conservative form of Christianity, what's real is very manipulated because they don't like certain parts of reality go against their narrative. And this is why you get situations where you get Ken Ham spending a hundred million (laughs) dollars of taxpayer money to build a replica of Noah's Ark in one of the poorest (laughs) states in the United States of America, in a country where people have no health care and are living in tents by railroad tracks while billionaires blast off into space. You get this like, talk about like missing the forest for the trees, right? Like, and so one of the things about mental illness is it, it kind of forces you to really ask the micro and the macro questions is, is, is the forest healthy and is the tree healthy? Right. And one of the things that I always clung to, even in my doubts about, you know, is Christianity real or not? I was always very drawn to the character and the figure of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And for me, it, it all boiled down to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like this was such an important sermon. Yeah. I believe it's mentioned in all four of the gospels, at least three of them, I think. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. And I would just cling to that. Even in all of my darkness, I would go to that. Mm. Like, what are we supposed to do? And the message was supposed to be really simple, love one another, right? And yet it doesn't look anything like that. in the reality of it. And then, you know, you read more into that and like one of the biggest things for me was you'll be able to know, you'll be able to judge the health of a tree by the fruit it produces. The fruit that was produced in me in that system, as I look at it now as a 44-year-old who has gotten away from it, I was racist. I was homophobic. I was misogynistic. I was really unkind and sometimes cruel in my thinking towards those who were less than me, the least of these. I had all these perfect narratives Mm. of, uh, you know, why people are poor. Well, it's their fault, right? Um, And you, you start kind of breaking down things piece by piece by piece. And, and when you're going through a mental health kind of reevaluation of yourself, 
you're already primed for that. And so I'm, I'm having at a young age to like figure out, first of all, what's real. Secondly, like which of the systems in my life that I'm plugged into are producing good information for me or bad information. So when I'm in a church and the pastor says to stop taking your psychiatric medication because it's the devil. And yet my doctor's like, dude, if you don't take this medication, you're probably going to try and kill yourself again. And then I stop taking the medication and I try to kill myself again. Well, guess what? (laughs) One of these people is more likely to be right than the other. One of them is an expert and the other is not. We are seeing this play out today very clearly in the United States of America, where white evangelicals are the people who are the least, most likely to be scientifically illiterate, the most likely to be afraid of their government and not be involved in it unless they've decided to take it over or destroy it, Um, historically illiterate, politically illiterate. Why? Where did all of this come from? What, What drove this thing? And when you kind of step back from it, you know, I'm 44. What year were you born? I'm, I'm 26 now. You're 26. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the things that we were born into the systems that exist now did not exist the way that they do 50 years ago. This was something that really came out of like the early seventies. And it was a, it was a backlash to, this progressive change that was occurring in the U S with like the hippie movement and the Vietnam war and a bunch of conservative people were really concerned that suddenly like women could get divorces and didn't need their husbands to like sign for a loan for them. Like you couldn't, if you were a woman, you couldn't get a loan in this country, I think until the eighties. Um, and so this system was set up to like protect a political thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was born into it, nobody told me that this was just, this is Christianity. Not even this is a form of Christianity. It's just, this is the right form of Christianity. All other forms are wrong. Um, and the narrative of it was driven by the popular culture. And then you had one of the things that was very successful with focus on the family and with, um, this 70s sort of moral majority group that got together and politicized Christianity was their, their key that they were smart about was media. And like, if you can control the narrative, then you can control people's minds. And if you have people constantly afraid that they're under attack, they're more likely to give you their money and their attention and their time. And so that narrative starts getting pumped into uh, that way of thinking. And as a mental health patient, I'm trying to figure out like, why do I think the world is always bleak? Well, holy shit. I go to a church that literally is telling me that it's a fallen world. Never going to get better. Ain't no point in trying to make it better. We just need to wait for Jesus to get here. And in fact, if we maybe hurried that process along (laughs) with some of the ways we vote, then maybe he'll show up in our lifetime. Right. Yay. Like, (laughs) And meanwhile, like we have homeless people and churches don't do anything about that. Maybe they have a soup kitchen once a month. Um, It it became clear to me that the system I was plugged into was not actually designed to heal people or make anything better, but that suddenly I don't have any money. Therefore I cannot participate in Christian capitalism. And 
what I'm observing is changing my politics. And the other like fruit that you will observe in white evangelical Christianity is that there's basically two things that that movement dri- drives people to do. One is to like participate in Christian capitalism and the other one is to vote. But the actual work of Jesus Christ is really nowhere to be found. It's mostly lip service. Um, and that was the thing that I suddenly realized, you know, now I'm being written out of the show. I'm 20 years old and I'm fucked in the head and my church doesn't really want me around. There's no place for me. But I suddenly started realizing like this system that I was raised in is it's maybe not as authentic and honest as I thought it was. Yeah. And it might be something that might actually be somewhat harmful. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to discover that in the late 90s, early 2000s. But when, when uh, something like that happens, like when, when your core narrative about reality and what it is to exist, what it is to be human and where, where humans are going, like your, your cosmic story, mm-hmm. when that falls apart, or when, when you suddenly have the realization that it's that it's this easy or or that it's possible for a big story like that to become infected with, you know, with some really negative behaviors, negative patterns. Sure. Or and even looking at your own, you know, the, the story of, of your own that your own brain tells you and you have to start to doubt that. How did you I mean and, and even did you how, how do you process beginning to embrace a new story despite the, you know, the the serious risk that there's gonna be this still this malignant viral nonsense that might just just end up in there without you know that you didn't choose to get there you didn't mean to be believing mm-hmm, the wrong thing mm-hmm. you know the answer to that is i don't know <laughs> uh i really don't like i i still struggle with that yeah. i still do to this day like i i don't know if the story of christianity is real or not i really don't like i can tell you what it's like to be a desperate 17 year old suicidal kid who just had his stomach pumped. I was told I was die that I died. I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I do sort of have a slight out of body experience memory, but no angels or God or anything. Right. I, I also, you know, a question I always had even before I got sick when I was a little kid, I would always sit there and ask everybody. I was like, well, we believe this, but over there they believe X, Y, Z. Yeah. If I was born over there, wouldn't I believe exactly. that? Yeah, yeah. Right? And like, and at the answer that always would come back, you know, to these poor like youth church leaders who, you know, they're not in the mood to deal with like a six year old yeah. with a 40 year old personality. <laughs> uh, you know, they're just like, well, we're right and they're wrong. They don't know that they're being lied to. And I would be like, well, don't, what if we're being lied to? Um, yeah. The answer that I have found is number one, I don't know. I have become more content with not knowing mm. as time has gone on. I don't have to know everything. Yeah. I don't have to have answers wrapped up into a perfect little bow at the end of the sermon. Yeah. Um, yeah to, to me, and I, I, I think I, sometimes I like people too, too, for too long, just a quick tangent, like as, as you know, processing some of the same stuff and like, you know, for me, I still find a lot of meaning in the Christian story. And that that concept that you're talking about for me has linked back to this idea of the holiness of God. Mm. Like I I don't, I don't even know if this is super canon to the Christian Christian theology or whatever, but the way I think about that word is just like the idea of like God being so beyond my understanding that it's like, but that I can, I can, so it's like, 
there's no version of God that I can comprehend. There's no version mm. of like the true story about reality. And that's even one, one of the ways I might think about what God is. It's like mm. the, the trueness, like the actual nature of everything as it is, right? I can't know that. I actually, sure. it's impossible. There's, there's no means for me to know that. There's always yeah. doubt. And so there's a fundamental part of my relationship with God where doubt is actually that that's a the, good that's part it of it to, yeah. to relate to God is God is the thing that you can't, that you can't be sure of. For right? sure. And it's, it is so awesome I, that I later on even learned that like Israel itself, that name in Hebrew just means the, it means the guy who wrestles with God. And right. yet in white evangelical culture, it means something very different. It means let's go to really, war really forever. certain that they understand God. You know, and, and this is where like I, coming from the mental health world, you see a young person with schizophrenia and you think, where the fuck could God possibly be? Right. And that was some of the things that I would start to see and experience where I would just sit there and be like, yo, I'm crying out to you for help mm-hmm. and ain't none coming, ain't none coming. And I don't know, is that because I'm being tested? Is that just because shit happens? And I just, yeah. that's the lottery I got. Um, is, is this, was this put on me like Job for a particular reason? Like, it's interesting. You, when you grow up in that system, you sit there and you're trying to process horrible things right. through these lenses of, you know, what you're taught and, and this system of thought that is given to you. And sometimes it doesn't add up. And I think getting comfortable with the fact that there's no easy answers in this world, it's made me much more strong. Let's see. I want to get my words right here. I no longer fantasize about heaven or life after this life. As far as I'm concerned, this is what we've got. Um, I'm not really sure I want to hang out in the afterlife with a God that's going to step aside and just allow genocides to happen, allow people with mental illness to suffer the way they do in this country while Christians do nothing about it. To me, that doesn't seem like God seems absent from all of that. Mm -hmm. So all I can do is try to make things better here now while I can. When I think about my concept of God, it's never changed. Like I, I was trying to explain this to somebody recently. They're like, well, you don't practice anymore. And I was like, yeah, true. Well, so then are you an atheist? I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't think I'm anything else. Like this is the framework that was imposed upon me from infancy. I don't think I can ever experience the concept of God outside of the Christian concept of it, that it's this triune thing. Um, but as time went on, the people who would tell me they were filled with the Holy Spirit would also tell me mental illness wasn't real. Or the people filled with the Holy Spirit vote for Trump. Yeah. Or suddenly they justify really horrible things. Um, or that the only problem in the world is abortion. Um, and so the way that like the, the system was tied into the politics and that behavior as somebody that had a problem that like couldn't be addressed by that scenario, like I was forced on the outside of it. And so I would sit, I I, I literally cannot describe to you that thousands of times I would pray for hours for relief. Mm -hmm. Never came. Um, 
but then weirdly, sometimes when I'm at my lowest and I'm most suicidal, I walk out of a hospital and there's an actor from Adventures and Odyssey, or I jump on Facebook and suddenly here's a fan I've never heard of that just listened to one of the episodes and reaches out to me. Like there's a weird mm. thing that occurs throughout the course of my life where when I'm at my lowest point, there'll be some little Adventures and Odyssey like mm. blip, you know, like yeah. thing, which then makes me think like, is this something, is there a higher force at work yeah. here? And I think in the sorting of that out one i had the luxury of leaving the system when i was like 17. Mm -hmm. it still took me 20 years to really divorce my brain from it um and even then i'm still like in it um but again i would sort of cling to like this idea of like the proof is in the pudding like mm -hmm. we are told like you'll be able to tell if something is real whether the fruit is good or not Healthy trees don't produce unhealthy fruit. Unhealthy trees don't produce healthy fruit. This isn't possible. And so I would try and see, like, is what I'm observing healthy or not? Yeah. And by and large, it wasn't. Um, and so I think then, like, my concept of God really changed to, in my heart, I want to believe that there's a God that exists. I want to believe that that God cares about us. I want to, as an artist... Yeah. As a creator, as somebody who feels things, I want to believe that there's something bigger out there, right. something deep that we can tap into. I, I mean, I, that, you know, that idea of there being, like, I, I, I think that it's almost impossible to be an artist without, ha without, like, I mean, maybe you can, like, you can be an atheist. You could be sort of a re reactionary atheist, where it's like, well, I don't believe in that God. But to be a romantic at all, to, to mm -hmm. be able to have this sense of like stories matter, that is so, it seems like such a spiritual thing to me. It's like, that's for so sure. connected to this intuition that like it would be possible for things to get better and that there actually is a real sense of what better would be. And it's, for like, sure. and that, it's like, I don't know how you, like that, that's beyond the realm of, of the rational and it's just it's in this spiritual place where it's like that's that's such a religious impulse to me it seems like it's like making art is fundamentally a i don't know it, it seems like it's fundamentally a religious thing or it's just like well it's in theory it's in theory based on the story it's what god did it's you know it's interesting how like god is called a creator yeah and as creatives that's what we're doing we're yeah. we're literally making something out of nothing yeah. um i actually heard this really cool the other day i was listening to um i forget who it was but they were talking about how in in you know the, our word enchantment right mm. in, in french uh chant just means a song mm. it's like the enchantment of the world or like re-enchanting the world re-enchanting your world or, or even just the sense of like when you've when you've lost the sense of having a meaning of a story it's like you feel disenchanted with the world it's like you've right. lost the song of reality right mm. and like well, i like that trying to find that again it's like okay it's like reality really there is this deep sense in, in which reality or at least that that's the intuition of art or of the artist or of the romantic is that there is this sense in which reality really is deeply anal analogous to a song and sure. you actually can participate in that in a meaningful way. No, I think as artists, we you're you're dancing with the divine, right? Like yeah. that's kind of how I 
because I and this is one of the reasons why like biblical literal biblical literalism never made sense to me because I'm a writer <laughs> and like I absolutely know what it's like to feel the highness of creative bliss and inspiration the the way that ideas will come to you seemingly out of like the ether and it, <laughs> it it does feel very spiritual and like you're in touch with the stars man with the gods it's amazing and to the point of like i don't know if that's not what's happening it might be yeah it might be that as creatives we tap into that i believe why not why can't that be a possibility um it's why I think most art made from a place of love is holy, even if it's not Christian. It's, I think it's the role of the artist to use our sensitivities to communicate ideas back to the rest of humanity that doesn't have the sensitive yeah, been touched. Uh, yeah. instrument that we have, that we've been gifted with. And so I'd absolutely, it feels holy for people. It, it feels holy. It, there's times I swear, like I'm not even in control of what I'm writing or if I'm doing like dramatic improv work and I've really done my homework and I've loaded the character into my body. You, it is, I, it's the weirdest shit. It's like, I'm watching myself perform and I have no control over yeah. it. It's the strain. Probably I'm sure you get there as a musician where just you, you know, the scales well enough that it's almost like your fingers move without right. yeah, yeah, yeah. your brain having to tell your fingers to do the thing. It's just your muscle memory over so many years and the way the music flows through your particular like yeah. soul, it just happens. And it, you get the same thing sometimes with acting and you get, I will get physically high literally. Yeah. Um, but then also you get this, like the chills down your spine Yeah, yeah, yeah. that make you, that make it feel like it's a, a metaphysical thing. And I, I don't, I have enough scholarly wisdom to determine whether it's not, whether it is or it isn't. I, I don't think, I, there think are, it, I think any, scholar I think it's that, just that as healthy to call it either is, thing. Is probably mistaken you know? because I, I think that's, that's, there's a perennial discourse about this, about what, for sure, what that is, you know? Yeah, no, it's the magic of being an artist. And like, and so I think if it, if it's something that draws you closer to your concept of God, roll with it. Yeah. As long, you know, as long as we're operating from a place of authentic artistry, then I think we're doing the Lord's work, whatever that means for you or me. Um, you know, for me, this interview is is God's work in my mind. It's, you know, it's me coming here and saying I have doubts and it's because I went through X, Y, and Z, um, you know, but I'm doing this because I, I think there's a greater reason for it. I'm hoping to influence people for something positive. When you're out there performing, you're trying to put something positive out into the world. Um, You know, it's very much like a divine thing that you're trying to do. And I think, I think uh, trying to untangle it. One, is there something holy out there that actually exists? Two, is this white evangelical culture it, or is it another perversion of it? Yeah, uh, one of the things that's really fascinating about Christianity is there's like seventeen thousand versions of it, <laughs> and this that is this is where count, like as a creative, a I sit there and I'm just like, hey God, um, you couldn't have been a little more specific there, like, you know, uh, 
I would think if you were trying to communicate with humanity, you'd be a little more clear. And boy, do we have a lot of different versions of this thing. Um, but I think as creatives, we, we do kind of tap into that. Um, and yeah, is it, is it actually us? Where does it come from? It's a, it's a really wild thing. And then in my specific case, you add in the mental illness to it. And sometimes that becomes my answer. Like, well, you know, one of the reasons I'm really good at acting is because I'm crazy as shit. <laughs> like, you know, I've got an incredibly vivid imagination. I've been faking something my whole life. It's easy for me to jump yeah, yeah. into some other character. Um, is that God or is that mental illness? Sometimes it's mental illness. Yeah. Other times I would swear to you, it's God. Like mm-hmm. I'm absolutely convinced that the, the, the gift that I, I do think it was something I was given or born with. It's not something it, like we talked about at the beginning, like that ability to read, like some kids either have it or they don't. Yeah. And I do sometimes feel like if I allow myself the arrogance, I sometimes feel like I am uniquely gifted by God to be in this weird situation. I was cast on this show at the very beginning of it. It's completely wild that I just happened to move to the place yeah. where I would like that when I, and then, and that then it would even follow me into my first suicide attempt. And like, it's just, there's times where I feel like absolutely there's a hand of God there. And then being lost in the weeds of mental illness and, how horrible this country is to people who are sick and suffering. Is is that even part of what, like that sense of like, maybe there is something there. So maybe there's something out there. Maybe there's this, maybe there is like a a meaning to it all. Is that like, is, is that part of what got you through? I mean, you you brought me up to about 20 years ago. There's a, there's a, there's a 20 year gap from there, from here, from there to here. I mean, I, I assume there's been some other lows and stuff, but was there any key thing that like that ended up clicking that was like, okay, that helped you to kind of start to get through those moments and say, I'm going to pick this up and I'm going to keep moving. Or is it just every time something different? I'm still in those moments. Like I think, dude, I was lying on my bed crying, bawling my eyes out two days ago. Like I still, I'm in it. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's something I still struggle with. Um, the birth of my kids helped. Um, my last, major suicide attempt was about 10 years ago. I had uh, two consecutive suicide attempts back to back uh, because I'm in poverty. We lost our housing during the 2008 housing crisis. Mm. Um, I had to move 500 miles away from everything I knew to Northern California. Yeah. Um, and that was hard uh, because I'm an actor and I'm so, I should be around other actors. Yeah. Um, I think for me, like, there's no, there's no like, like, Oh, I figured this thing out. It's been more assist a series of just like constantly putting out fires and, and I find myself where I am. So for example, um, when I first moved up to Northern California, I had been waiting for a number of years to like find a way because you're on the public dollar. I'm on food stamps. I'm on disability. You know, it focused on the family sharing, sharing uh, all the number of times that they like repackage my episodes and sell them in the Christian bookstores and whatnot. Like I don't get any of that. And so I was struggling for years and I ended up on a trial as a juror 
uh, thinking like, oh, here's how I'm going to get back to society, right? I think I uh, and I, I ended up that because it because hanging the trial because it was race Facebook, and like that informed my politics even more. And so then, like people heard I had done that, they started dragging me more into uh, a lefty politics. Um, but there was never a clear answer. And in fact, I think I've spent most of my life just endlessly frustrated by the number of times that I would think something was an answer to prayer and it wasn't, hmm. um, the number of times that like, I would try and collaborate with like you guys or whoever, and like a project would fall through yeah. and you think you sit there and you're like, Oh, this is it. This is the thing. Yeah. Um, I think as time has gone on, I, I look at consistent patterns um and the more that i've experienced the less i find that the upbringing i had has legitimacy i think the more i experience uh, the more i feel that that system is corrupt and inaccurate and harmful and and then really the i probably if there is a bellwether moment it was the election of trump because I'd been saying for years, I was like, I think this white evangelical thing, it strikes me as very apocalyptic. It strikes me as political and it strikes me as a cult. I think it's an apocalyptic political cult. And this was back in like 2000, 2001, 2003, especially during the invasion of Iraq. Um, the way that like the white evangelical fervor was being whipped up. But the behavior of everybody after Trump, that was... Uh, that was when I, it confirmed everything I had been seeing for a long time. I was like, see, I knew this was cruel yeah. because every time I reached out for help, I was rebuffed in sometimes very rude, vicious ways yeah. um, that this thing that's supposed to be about love actually isn't. It defends a lot of unloving things. And when we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we ask ourselves, "Is does the fruit look like this? No, it doesn't. It looks like a bunch of people who will, you know, defend homophobia and white supremacy and misogyny and, um, and in fact, not helping the least of these, but in fact, ad ad actively making their lives worse and then blaming them for it. Um, there's a huge, tremendous like culture of like victim blaming. And so I, I think there's never ever been like a particular moment certainly the election of trump and the behavior of those folks afterwards like it changed me forever like now now i can't just sit by and passively observe this thing because as a mental health patient i spent a lot of years hiding it's very common with a lot of patients you know the abuse we experience or the discrimination is so bad you don't want people to know this about you um it's why i I'm a nervous, right? I'm literally sweating through this shirt right now as we're talking because I, I've never wanted to really out myself to the white evangelical crowd. Um, they're vicious and they've been awful for a quarter of a century. But the times are so dangerous now that I feel an obligation to sort of like talk about this stuff I don't want to talk about because I think we're all observing something is not well. Yeah. And I had the weird luxury of experiencing that it wasn't well all the way back in 93, 94, 95. And it was through this really awful experience that I got to see, wait a minute, the emperor wears no clothes. Right. There's no, 
this this thing is hollow it's not as loving as you think it is it yeah. it's dripping in this like artifice of love yeah it's dripping in all the language of love it sounds loving the books that are sold to you are sold with love the albums are sold with love like but really is it and what i experienced was no and like it's not it's not kind it's rather vicious um and it's really about power and control and so i think it's it, you know in a weird way it's been a luxury to be crazy because <laughs> to use that as a pejorative term because like it allowed me the freedom to actually see kind of what things are right um as as an undesirable and that's what you become when you're mentally ill you're an undesirable person to all of society but especially to the church yeah. like it's it's interesting i mean I've had a lot of these these kinds of conversations with different friends I grew up with over the over the, I mean the past few years as I've been kind of thinking about this stuff and it's everybody's approaching it from slightly different angles but there's there is a sense of like trying to unpack like what there there there's a consistent sense of there was something wrong with what was happening here and and, and people tend to to get you know the story pans out slightly different for everybody Sure. But for some reason, I have this this impulse to try to wrestle with with this identity as an evangelical, and I'll I'll even I'll even still call myself an evangelical Christian. I I, I want to. I, I don't know why it. I I think I may, maybe kind of know why it is. It's it's that I I, I have this. I don't know. I, like I I don't want to take the easy way out of, of like, of just scapegoating. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, I don't know. I, I guess that the more I learn different people's stories, the more I see how any cultural narrative you get part of, you become part of has blind spots and has sure. exaggerations. And it's it's honestly it's just tough being a human. It's tough figuring out how to put yourself into a story and and try mm -hmm. to like go what the direction that seems to be right. And I mean, you know, not not intentionally just separating myself from from the entire anything that has to do with the title of evangelicalism. I still mm -hmm. talk to these people and I still see I still have a chance to talk to them and, and talk to them about how they're processing the world and seeing where things are going and I I don't I don't get the sense that there's, you know, it's it's just, to me, it's, it's not as simple as these people are just hateful and they're looking for an excuse to be hateful. Although that's totally no. true too. Like I, I'm a hateful person and I look for excuses to be hateful and I don't, I try to not think about it that way, but there are, there are ways in which I'm just not good enough of a person and I have to try to explain that away so that way I don't have to deal with that, those negative sure. parts of me. But, you know, as you talk about this and as you as you process, you know, this, this whole thing from your perspective, it's really, it's really, I, I think it's really important. I mean, for the people, I hopefully, you know, some people who, who would identify with that movement have sat through this conversation too, but it's, it's for me, it's really almost exciting to, to say, okay, I'm not just going to get rid of this label. I want to sit here and I want to like, I know these problems better than, a lot of people because I lived through them and I can identify with them. And it's like, I have this sense that you can't really work on problems unless you identify with them. If, 
if and it's like to the extent that I have any energy to work on this and I feel like I might have a sort of gift to to work on that it's like th- this is a project I think I can at least for right now anyways it's one that I feel this sort of calling this this sense of like mm-hmm. I want to stick around here and I want to see how we could move forward not just sure. I want to point at those guys and say you guys are fucking idiots and you need to stop right. doing this way you know and, and so it's nice I mean I guess I'm just trying to say it's it's meaningful me meaningful for me to hear this whole story from you because because I I think part of even just talking about capitalism and, and how that's kind of sort of got wrangled up with 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 American Christianity with Amer- American oh, yeah. evangelicalism one of the features of of what allowed capitalism to flourish so well is that we got very good at externalizing any negative attributes of whatever we were doing. So we could have this beautiful holy land. Not our fault. Extreme, you know, we have access to anything all the time, no matter where you are, you know, you could get it because we have these massive, you know, we have these beautiful factories. Well, not beautiful. Mm -hmm. We we have these factories that exist in other countries that are horrible, but they give us these great products and everybody has access to them. Everybody has access to everything. We all get to live this great, beautiful dream. And, and, the only reason it feels beautiful to us is because there's this radical disconnect between the processes that bring about this wonderful result mm-hmm. and like enslaving people. As soon as we can reconnect that story again and see, actually there's a whole process here and there's, there's externalities. There's, there's actually negative sure. stuff that has to take place in order for you to get this. It's not life. Isn't, you know, life isn't free. The, the so only, one of the, Things that I observed to that point. Uh, so just a couple of thoughts that jump out at me. Number one, you've been in this system your whole life, your whole life. You have never unplugged from it. And I, I don't say that with judgment. I just say that like matter of factly, like you, you, this is, see, I was weirdly fortunate to unplug from it in my teen years or be forced to un- yeah, unplug yeah. from it. Really. When I was like begging to be still plugged in, I was like pushed away uh, so I think the longer you're in it, and it, it, especially when you go from like adolescent brain to adult brain, um, I think that's going to create more of like a reinforcement. So the way you're going to view it when you're 17 is going to be very different than if you lived with it for another 10 years. Um, so I think what we are observing is or what we've been living in was a system that was really created specifically for political reasons it really was like it was created for political and capital reasons the the whole point of it was that the modern culture was not good to christians right like like oh there's no tv or radio for us there's no music for us there's nothing that you know, if we buy secular music, it's, it doesn't address our world, which is, you know, one of worshiping God and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so literally they created an alternate economy for people in that system to then, you don't have to ever leave that system. Because I think the, t- the thinking at the time, the prevailing ris- wisdom was like, oh, the world's going to hell and therefore we need entertainment for, you know, our bubbles to be safe in. Well, they were really, really successful at that. This wasn't a failed effort. In fact, it was 
probably one of the great media success stories of the 20th century. <laughs> and it legitimately, like what these guys did was brilliant. Like they created a second economy. Um, but what that does is that then you grow up in a system where like everything you consume is a part of this system, right. everything. And what is it all leading to? What's the point? Are we actually trying to save souls or are we trying to vote for Supreme court justices? And I think to I, uh, a conversation I had recently was brought up that are people doing this maliciously? Mm-hmm. And that was asked to me, like, and I said, you know, I don't think it's malicious. I really don't. I think it's good people trying to do a good thing. I really, I think it's people there when you're raised in this system. I can remember once as a kid, uh, there was a very famous atheist in the States, Madeline Marie O'Hare. Um, and she was like on a crusade to tear down like Christian radio. And I remember as a kid, I was like, wait a minute, I like doing Christian radio. And I wrote her a letter. Um, and my mother was so proud of me. Wow. And, that, you know, and it, it was just like, but it, it, the entire thing was rooted in culture wars. Right. And so I think one of the things that's missing in our current narrative, as we're seeing the whole thing fall apart, is that it, it was always a culture war response. Right. It was always a political response. And it was always a capitalist yeah. response. Because these were the only tools that the people at the time had to uh, look into this or address their place in the world. And as much as Christians will tell you that they're not of the world, boy, they sure do want to take it over. Um, like... Right. Like yeah. it's a boy, they sure are not trying to like not control your government. Um, and I think when we talk about like your personal faith versus the movement at large, I think those are two very different things. Yeah. But as someone who had a personal faith in that movement at large, when I started seeing that the movement at large was not matching the faith that i had yeah it it made me then question the like is the thing i believe in real um is it the fault of christianity or is it the fault of this white evangelical cult thing like and is this a perversion of the christian message which is what i believe the the issue is largely it was a it was politics um and the money changers came in at the temple so to speak um and so I think the part that's pissing me off over the last few years is the absolute abject unwillingness of people yeah. in that system to ever step outside of it and look at it with a critical eye, yeah. even as it goes completely over the cliff, well, even as it completely it turns into every other cult that they warned you about growing up. Oh, you do, you know, Mormons are cults, JWs are cults, Scientologists are cults. Well, yeah. guess what? Now a cult just tried to overthrow the government of the United States of America, and they're not doing it because they love people. They're doing it because they're trying to bring an end to the world, (laughs) and they're okay with pandemics. They're okay with the state of California burning to the ground. They don't give a a shit about people who are suffering. Like It's really sad. I I, I see – well, I I, I can't quite follow you. All the way to the, to the end of your last sentence, because sure, 
I don't know. Well, I, for I, that, think, I think the most just, important thing about- Can I give about, a caveat there? Because sure, sure. when I'm talking about the system at large, I'm talking about the 91% of people who identify as white evangelicals who stood behind Trump the entire time. 91%. Right. And there is something like in my fans, in the, the cast and the, a lot of the cast and the crew that still work on that show- they're diehard Trumpers. Yeah. Diehard. And like, and so there is some the the most loyal group that like pushed through this whole thing, it was white evangelicals. And that I, I know I'm speaking in generalized terms, yeah. But that's specifically the group I'm talking about. But as far as I mean, as far as trying to figure out what's going on there, I think I think the most important part of unpacking this this whole thing in a meaningful way is is being careful not to mischaracterize um, unnecessary. Well, I mean, it's just like, as far as even just looking at, like, so if we want to look at the movement, we could do that. But if you want to look at yourself too, it's like, to the extent that I, you know, I look at my own life and look at my own actions and I look sure. at my intents and I try to unpack them. And I, I, if I want to, I can tell a really negative story and I can tell a very selfish story about my whole life up to this point. Or I sure. could tell a very positive story. And the thing is that I could actually tell both of those stories that don't overlap in any way and have both of them be very, or at least similarly true. Sure, sure. And it, the only difference is just that, like, if I, if I characterize the whole thing as negative, then I, then I just kind of, I have this excuse to kind of throw out my whole life up to this point and just say I'm a whole different person now. Or if I characterize it all as good, then I have this total excuse to not change anything about myself. Sure. But I think the really important part of, of both self, self-critic, self-criticism, not criticalization, <laughs> self-criticism, and like community criticism is making sure not to just tell one side of that story. For sure. It's to somehow figure out how to straddle this sense of, I, I know you actually feel like you, you're participating in something that's bringing about you know what's supposed to happen whether you think it's supposed to be the end of the world whether whatever it is sure but that there's other this other side where you know i don't know and you don't know how many lies are in that bag mm-hmm. and but there are lies in there and and there's some serious negative repercussions and so i mean what i was bringing up before as far as like the whole capitalism thing is it's just like as we begin to kind of connect these stories again and see okay actually we don't get the uh the nice uh, computers and stuff like that without having mm-hmm. the, the people working horrible hours in China and wanting to jump. Well, we could, we just don't want to pay people. Right. Like, it's like we don't, we don't get this easy story or at least, but at least seeing, okay, the, the way we're doing things right now, when we, when we put that whole story together, we see, okay, we actually right. need to take some responsibility here and, and see, see how we can do this differently. When, when, when we can sit here though and do this and you can talk about, and, and you can talk about how this, how this story affected you and what what, sure. what happened in your life. And I can look at that and I can see, okay, that actually, I, I can see how that connects to my experience. I can see how that connects to my religion. As long as we, as, as we be careful not to like, that's, that's why I, I'm just wondering. So, so with your own processing this, I, and I think this is, I, I guess it's just kind of important. This is like when you're trying to process something that, that had a negative effect on you, you have to kind of focus on that negative side of the story because that's the important part of the story from that perspective. No, no, I think, I think cause I can, I can easily see the good in things. It's that 
we have had shoved down our throats in our culture for 40 years that this is only a good thing. Right. Exactly. It's only good. It comes from God. It can't be bad. Can't possibly be bad. It can't possibly be wrong. It's God. And so to me, the answer is by bringing truth to it and saying, you know what, there's something wrong here. I, I don't think that's a, I'm not trying to tear down the parts of it that are good. If they're good, they're going to still be good. But if there is something rotten, is it not our duty to call it out? And I think there's a, there's a thing that Christians do a lot. And when I say Christians, I'm speaking generally. So I'm really speaking specifically kind of about this white evangelical cult thing that I'm worried about. Um, there's very much, man, Christians are so quick to just be like, well, it's not my fault. Like, yeah. and yet actively participate in the thing. And a, a way that you see this is if you go back in history, 150 years, um, Christians were just fine enslaving people. Now, does that mean that the Christianity is bad or does that mean that the people are bad? When, when genocides were done in the name of God, doesn't matter which religion that did it. It's happened all over the world for millennia. We've been doing it. Hell, the entire Old Testament is literally about God being like, yes, go commit genocide over there. Go kill those people. Um, yeah. Let's make sure all the Canaanites are destroyed. Like children Don't too. Don't those kids. Um, right. Like, so I think there's this, there's an inherent thing that we have to protect our own thing whatever that is, our tribe, our neighborhood, our crew, our religion. We want the things that we've invested our lives into to be right. It's so hard to admit we're wrong. Again, one of the weird gifts of mental illness is being forced at a young age to admit that I'm wrong. And most people in life are never willing to do that. They're never willing to do the hard work of looking through, I mean, everything, every part of your life. Why do I believe this? Why do I believe this? Why do I believe this other thing over here? And when you're a mental health patient, you are literally forced to do that. And so it's horrible, but it's also very freeing in the end because it suddenly you do that to everything and you're just like, wait a minute, is this real? Mm -hmm. And how does that blur into this religion that I was raised into and this, this mode of thinking that was put upon me? So I, I am currently very bleak on it, but my reasons for that is because our country almost went through a coup. We're in the middle of a pandemic and this was all brought about and we're I'm literally the state of California is on fire right now. And every time we ever try to fix any problem in this country, it's the same group of people that prevents it from happening. And they come from the same background, this white evangelical thing. And so there may be good stuff in there. Great. That's awesome. Um, but just because we, people might believe in, in a particular version of Christianity, there were people that absolutely believed slaves should never be set free. In fact, I don't think the Bible advocates for slaves being set free. The Bible is pro-slave. So they ju- they used this book to justify horrors that were visited on people for centuries and that yeah. people are still going through the effects of it 150 years later. Clearly, we would think if God is real and God is a pl- 
an entity of love, God wouldn't stand for that. Yet God didn't really stop it. Um, And so I think a, a thing for me is like, I got to a place where I stopped needing to defend my belief structure because I got to a point where I was like, either it's real or it isn't. It's, this is a truly binary situation. It's either zero or one, either there is no God or there is. Um, if it does exist, there's no need to defend it. It's like two plus two equals four. There's a need to understand it. Maybe, maybe we don't understand what this God is. Maybe, or maybe the way God has articulated itself through the millennia, maybe humans corrupt it because that's what happens when people have power. I don't know. Um, and so I, I think for myself, where I get to a, a point is, is like, there's multiple things happening. One, do I still believe in this thing? I'm not sure. I, I know I don't fully not believe in it. Then there's this other thing. How is this situation behaving in our culture and is it healthy? And so you might be a person of religious belief of a system. And for you, it's bringing tremendous meaning and it's bringing a tremendous sense of validation and um, a closeness to the divine. Um, And you may not be engaged in the other negative aspects of it. But I think this is one of the arguments that like a lot of social activists are using in this culture right now when we talk about white privilege. Um, I'm a person of privilege. I was born in upper middle class. My family's been wealthy, not like seriously wealthy, but like, you know, I've got doctors and lawyers in my family history. If I was a person from an African background, um, I'm going to have a very different family story here in this country. Um, and white people, the reason we get all fragile is we today we're like, well, it's not my fault. I didn't do that. I wasn't the one that enslaved people and brought them from one, uh, you know, uh, part of the world to another. It's not my fault. And I, I see that same kind of like blame shifting in a lot of the, the external this culture. Yeah. Where it's like, well, it's not my fault. White evangelicals have gone off the bend, but you know, my close personal relationship with God isn't like that. And yet everybody who goes around the bend like that also believes that they have a close personal relationship with God and that they're full of the Holy Spirit and they're doing what God is asking them to do because the entire culture of it has primed them for that their entire lives. And I think that's where we're at is that this system worked so well that you have people who have spent the entirety of their lives in it. And they're going to defend it to the death because they have to, because to go through the cognitive dissonance of like what I went through and you're 50 years old, just thinking these things for the first time, like your, your brain is going to melt down to realize that, Hey, maybe, maybe this version of what I believed in wasn't totally healthy. Yeah. Well, so maybe that's to some extent, that's, the project that I feel really drawn to is just figuring out how to be better. I mean, I feel like one of the deepest ways in which evangelicalism failed me, and I don't feel like it failed me in every way, but one of the ways that it did fail me is not creating a space or or not giving me a space to engage these actual questions that I had about, about meaning and about God and about culture Mm -hmm. that, that, 
these questions were just sort of demanded of me as somebody who had access to the internet. It's like mm-hmm. we, just, we have so much more access to questions and information at this point. It's like you, you don't get around these questions. And we just didn't have a space for that in evangelicalism. And so, I mean, t- to some extent... And we were forced in evangelicalism to believe that everything we were being taught was bullshit by the yeah, world. Exactly. And so we're inherently in a place of confusion at a young age constantly. But so what I want to try to figure out how to do is to all the people that are now either just having to kind of shut away any of the dissonance and say, just go away. I'm certain my religion is right. Rather than presenting them with this ultimatum that, oh, either either your understanding of religion is right or actually you have to give up every bit of it and, and go and become, you know, sure. this, this uh, I don't know, this straw man version godless liberal, liberal baby exactly. killers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if i can engage if i can engage the people that that you know that i know and that uh, that are important to me that 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 sure. have that, that, that i disagree with in certain ways politically or whatever if i can engage sure. the part of them that that i know is looking for good and i say it's it's, it's not just like I'm, I'm not just pointing at you and saying hey you're a hateful, horrible person. It's like, okay, I, I understand you're trying to figure out truth. I am too. Don't don't know yeah. where truth is, but let's. I don't know. It's it's just I, I want to find criticism that lands better than than just saying stop being an idiot. You know, because that that doesn't sure. that doesn't work on me. So the the way that I recommend to people is because I don't. I I'm a person that believes in shades of gray. So I don't think anything is really inherently pure good or pure evil, except for little babies. They're pure good. <laughs> like they're a little baby. They can't help it. Yeah. Except in the Christian narrative, they're pure evil when you're born. Like, well, no, no, uh, because you haven't reached the dude, age of accountability. You're, un- you're, you're perfect if you're a baby still. Okay. Well, until you're a toddler. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then you're fucked up. But so Terrible one of the twos, things that man. I recommend to people is number one, my critique, again, is not of the Christian religion. It's of this very American, white, evangelical form of it. Because I think this is what's killing our country and the world right now. Because uh, I, I think people don't realize the undue influence that this particular ideology has. Um, and how do you separate that from like the actual religious belief structure buried in it? which I believe is overwhelmed by all of this political capitalist crap. Um, and I think some things that I recommend to people is number one, you're never going to be able to look fairly at something as long as you're in it. I really believe in that in my heart. Like, I don't think you can, when you're emotionally tied to something and you're surrounded by it and you're in it all the time and you defend it with your life and it's hard to then look at it with fresh eyes and to be able to ever see it um, from a new perspective. Now, maybe that new perspective is, is healthy or not. It might be unhealthy. Um, But I think in any system of thought or thinking or religious belief or philosophical belief, I'm a big, big advocate. And I think this comes from my understanding of, of mental health space is like we have to get away from ourselves in some level to like get away from it and to look back at it or to challenge it in a way to see how it actually responds. Uh, And so one thing I recommend to folks is 
if you think that your religion is not a political cult and you want to prove it to yourself, then tell people at your church you're thinking of voting for the other side. And you'll see how you're treated really quickly. Uh, and you'll find out whether you're in a political cult or whether you're in a church that's like, what? I don't care how you vote. Is your relationship with God good? Yes. Okay, that's all that matters. Uh, because we're going to have conservative and liberal people throughout life, right? Like some people are more risk averse. Some people, you know, are much more aggressive and wanting to make an impact in the world and make things better. Um, are you, so that's one of the like litmus tests you can do at home to see like, is, is the people that I've surrounded myself with or been born into? Cause I think a lot of people in these thought systems have never been outside it. You were born into it. It's a part of your culture. It's a part of your neighborhood. You've never really stepped outside of it. Um, so it's hard to like gauge it and to see like, is it healthy or not? And I go back to the analogy that Jesus talked about, like the fruit produced from the tree yeah. is good fruit being produced here. Are these good people? Is this, is this system producing good humans or is it producing homophobic racist people who think that they're not racist? And, um, the other way I recommend, so that's the first thing is like, you know, if you just, just want to do a simple little test, just tell people you're going to vote differently and see what happens. The other thing is that I recommend is, and I would say this to anybody, regardless of thought, I, I cannot stress enough the value of a sabbatical. Mm. Um, you cannot know a thing until you get away from it. You really can't. You can't know what it is until you can get emotionally distance enough from it to be able to look at it the way that somebody that wasn't born into it looks at it. Right. So one of the things that was really fascinating to me was when I moved to Northern California and the more I got out of the evangelical system, uh, I, you know, I would tell people like, oh, I was raised in the system. And by and large, the number one response I would get was people would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you went through that. It wasn't this like vicious, mean-spirited thing. It was like really genuine people that were really sad that I had been, that they thought I was trapped in this like ideology um, that was toxic. And so I think, I'm not saying it is toxic or it isn't uh, in this particular moment. But what I would say is I, I don't think you can look at it fairly until you, Right. step away and have some breathing space. And when I mean step away, I mean fully step away. Close your books, turn off your radio, stop listening, stop consuming the same content that right. you've been consuming. Because sort of really like my critique here is that this is a, it's a capitalist system with like Christian window dressing. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a narrative that, that is in all of those books. There's a narrative in all the music. It's a very specific like narrative that's being pushed in the guise of Christianity. And so I think you have a bit more clarity when you can step back from it and look at it with fresh eyes. Um, the other thing is when you do step back from it, if you're willing to take that chance, um, is that go then into a scenario that is unfamiliar to you. Uh, and there I would recommend, like, I, I almost wish everybody would take a vow of poverty for a couple years a of their life. What? Say that again? 
Sorry, a vow of what? Poverty. Oh, okay. Uh, because when you experience poverty the way that a lot of us are insulated from, you really realize that a lot of your political philosophy is utter trash. And you really don't realize how people are like economically kept in these situations or um, have their, you know, their lives derailed by forces beyond their control the same way that like a mental health diagnosis is. Um, And so I think uh, what I advocate is that you test the system, whatever it is. I don't care if you're an atheist, test it. If you are an agnostic, test it. If you're a Christian, test it but you can't test something by being constantly immersed in it. Um, If you're always in the warm pool, you don't know what cold water feels like. Um, And so I think we are, we were given ways. And if you read the sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it pretty clear. Like there's ways you can tell if this is a healthy thing or not. And I think a lot of people in these systems are in a state of denial because in their heart, they know there's something wrong but they're so invested in it that they don't, they can't admit it. And I think that's where then people get really angry and they want to blame some other thing. Oh, that's the problem. And I I just recommend that I, I think test it in a healthy way and then give yourself some space. Like, you know, all of that content is gonna, if you took a sabbatical for a year or two, I think it takes about two years to get fully away from a thing. Um, If you decide then after two years that the thing you believed in was right, great, go back to it. Nothing changes. You haven't, you haven't lost your salvation. You haven't lost God. But I think like we sometimes really need to put ourselves in a place of discomfort to test if what we're experiencing is real or not. Um, And, and then be able to look at like our fellow people, who aren't in that system. See, one of the problems is, is when you're in that system, you're constantly surrounded by other people in that system. Yeah. yeah when yeah. you get out of that system, so it's like a feedback loop. When you get out of that system and you start to see how does the world actually respond to this? Well, when you're in white evangelical Christianity, the world's against you. Yeah. Oh man, they're against you, bro. Like they're trying to tear you down. They're trying to take God out of the schools. They're trying to take God out of the media. They're trying to take God out of our government holy shit. Like, you know, and then you get out into the world and you get away from it. And most of the world is just like, man, do do we have to shove Christianity into everything? Like really into cakes too? Like really do we have to have Christian cakes? Like, you know, and you, you start to see that maybe this thing that I grew up in that I thought was safe and healthy, maybe the fruit of it actually isn't, healthy maybe it's rotten and in the context of this conversation you know we're going to speak in like generalized terms yeah uh and so nuance and specificity is is lost here um but speaking in general terms like i really believe if people get away from it and you take a look at it with a critical eye and you see the fruit of it right now are the people that support this system making the world better and i i I absolutely believe they're actively destroying the world right now and this isn't it's it's not you know i'm not trying to be like argumentative but when people are beating a cop to death on the steps of the united states capitol with an american flag 
and then they crash into the Capitol to stop a liberal from being becoming president. And then they hold a prayer meeting while committing their insurrection. To me, this is no longer cute. This is something very, very toxically dangerous where we're manipulating people's religious beliefs to achieve political ends. And that then begs the question to me of like, why aren't more people of good conscience who I believe are trapped in this system, why aren't more of them coming out against this? And like, aren't we supposed to rebuke abuses of the system? And what you'll find by and large is that people won't rebuke it. They want to stay in it. And like, cause that's their comfort zone. And so I think the moment that like your ideology becomes comfortable is the moment that you need to be worried because if it's comfortable, it's, it's probably somewhat false because the world ain't comfortable. Those are some thoughts anyways. I know I'm just monologuing. Well, I mean, just to, to jump back cause I, I was, so, I mean, I, I, for one thing I, I can, I can riff on what you're saying for a second because I, I think, I think that is super important, and I and I think that there's there are even versions of Christianity and many religions that try try to engage that sort of pattern of you know taking even some time every year it becomes it becomes part of the pattern of the religion to like to stop acting out the pattern of that religion at least for a portion of every year. I I think even as far as there, there's a you you can engage part of the Christian story in that way and say okay once a year we tell the story of Christ, of God dying, right? Our manifestation, our understanding of what God is dying, and we have to engage with that and stop believing in that version of God and let it die. And then three days later, a, 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 new, a new manifestation of God comes and we actually don't even recognize it. Like that's the story of Christ's, of, of the passion, is everything that the disciples thought Christ was, or at least the things that they thought that were, were most important about him, that he was going to, you know, he was going to take over their government and he was going to set things right politically for them. That wasn't, that wasn't what he was there to do. And, nope. and, and suddenly it's like, and then he said, this, this person that they, they have this conception about who God is and what God's going to do it actually dies right in front of their eyes. And then, you know, spend three days just sulking in that. And then something mm-hmm. comes back and it's, it's so different yet. So, so deeply still God. Like I, I think that's that's a deep part of the Christian story that that, that we kind of miss out on. But so so I mean, that, that's my part of of, of of agreeing with what you're saying. But sure. I mean, as far as as far as this project that I that I'm in or that that I'm you know trying to work on right now as a young guy you know, sitting there in my my mid twenties trying to process what it is what's my role in, in life and how, how am I going to live life meaningfully? I mean, yeah. I definitely have had that experience of like, you know, I, I went through a few years of really not being able to call myself, or at least not confidently call myself a Christian and like just right. wondering, you know, what is this all about? But I, I mean, for me, it went, went to some weird dark places where I, I wasn't even sure if anything existed. I wasn't sure I existed. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, and, and trying to grapple with all those doubts, I still have come out the other side where, and maybe it's just because I still live around these people, but the what I was what I was asking you, and, and that what I even part of the reason I wanted to to sit there and, and record a conversation like this is because mm-hmm. I wanted to. I feel like one of the biggest issues that we're struggling with in you know the English speaking world and probably 
anybody who's 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 engaging with the internet as a means of communication i th- I, th- I think the internet might might be part of the problem or at least part of the the host of this problem but it's that we're we're, we're getting really bad at at doing criticism well and i think self criticism for sure yeah no but it's just like criticism again for 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 one thing i think criticism only really works well as self criticism and it's like okay so you you can expand past self-criticism and say you want to criticize somebody else it only works to the extent that you identify i think with that person and you say hey we're, we're working on this together i i really think that's an important important element of criticism of being meaningful and being something that people are willing to actually take seriously it's like oh you're not treating me as, a, as an enemy here you're treating me as somebody who we are trying to do something together sure and i, and I the, the issue so where i, I would depart from that point of view, I would agree with you to a point. What I would also say is that for four decades, the right wing in this country has expressly made a concerted effort to demonize the other side. There's, there is no love, none for liberals, for anybody with a progressive point of view. These are people that are trying to kill your babies. They're godless monsters. And like, that's the world I grew up in. I used to believe that. Like I used, I genuinely used to believe that anybody left of what, how I voted was a godless baby killing monster. That's the narrative thrown down your throat. Like that's, that's, that's where they make all the money is in that narrative that you're under attack constantly. And so I I think there's a a phenomenon in specifically in evangelicals that system of like, we don't actually do this bad thing that everybody else does. And then they turn around and do it. Uh, So there's, we are already primed in this system to believe that everybody's out to get us. Right. And so if everybody's out to get you and you're the only one that's right, then therefore, the ends justify the mean of whatever it is you're trying to do. And I think like we grew up in a system that where there was always a scapegoat of like some other entity that's trying to like harm us. And I I think that is so hardwired into that whole system that it's, it's sort of interesting that like, I think it's hard to be introspective um, because you're just always in this state, this like hypervigilant state of like, being under attack like um and so the enemies are everywhere and then when anybody dares criticize us oh my god like they're clearly wrong and they're clearly idiots right well the danger though is just like so that is such a a useful story as far as you know reinforcing your own selfishness and not having to engage your own issues how do how do you and i work on not allowing that story to follow us as we begin to work through and identify some of the problems and not just telling the same, an, in, an inversion of the same mm-hmm. story, but from the, from a, you know, just a, another perspective. I think we have to let it all. Uh, so for me, the answer is let it all go because what's real is going to stay with you. Right. Hmm. It, it, at least this is like how I interpret it because as a mental health patient, you're, you don't know what's real and what's not. A lot of the time. I, I, and I still struggle with that 30 years later. I ask my family, like, hey, am I out of bounds here or is, am I symptomatic? I can't tell. 
Mm. Uh, is this thing that I'm feeling and experiencing reality or just my overactive imagination? Um, I think it's, for me, the answer is I had to get away from it to be able to discern what's real and what's not in it and what's healthy and what's not. And the, the further I get away from it, the, the more I cling to some of like the basic truths, mm. love one another. Okay. Yeah. Is this a system that's loving one another? It doesn't look like it to me. Mm. I haven't experienced that as a patient that was begging to be loved by the system. Um, and so it's, does that mean the whole system's rotten? I, I don't know. I, what define rotten? Like if, if you have a barrel of apples and there's one rotten apple in the barrel, is the barrel rotten? What, what's the percentage before like we declare that this is a mostly rotten barrel versus a mostly good one? Yeah. And so I, I, it's hard to sometimes answer some of these questions, but kind of what I cling to in, in the way that my brain works is, is the system producing healthy fruit? If it's not, how can I see that? Because I might be so close to it that I can't tell right. that it is. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a really big advocate of, for myself, stepping outside of my own misery, stepping outside of my anger, stepping outside of my ideologies, whatever they might be for that week or month, and, and just constantly asking and checking. And, and the way we take temperature, the way we like check a barometer to see what the weather pattern is. Um, I, it's not something that's going to be clear or obvious one time. You know, like it, we're talking about a system of millions of people. So it, it, this is not something that I think we can just look at and easily write off or dismiss good or bad one way or the other. I think we have to really study it for a while and we have to look at the totality of it. Mm. I think the problem is that having studied it for a while and looking at the totality of it for a very long time, a quarter of a century now in my case, um, there's something really rotten here. Does that mean that the message of Christianity is rotten? No, I'm not willing to make that leap. That's not, I'm not trying to draw that line from here to there. Am I willing to say, I think this form of it is perverted and a heresy? Yes, I'm willing to say that. I think there's something very wrong here. Am I a scholar? No, I'm not a scholar. Like, but do I trust evangelical scholarship? No, not even a little bit. Like, you know, like this is a system that is completely reinforcing saying that they're right all the time. Um, and then, you know, they support coups and things like that, or they're against vaccinations in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so I think like it's, it's incumbent upon all of us as people of conscience to, you know, take time. If this is something that you're going to put your entire life into. Yeah. Does it not merit stepping away from it from time to time and making sure that it's healthy, making the same reason we go to a doctor to get a checkup? Um, and are, do we have enough sources of trust outside of that system to let us know yeah. when the system, whatever the system might be, goes bad? Right. Or are we so stuck in the system that we can't see it with fair, clean Eyes. And to an extent, um, it even allows you to see what the system is beyond your sort of conception of it. 
Right. It's like, it's like okay, so which I, is I'm practicing this hard when you're like born and, and raised into it and you've lived in it right. for 50 years. Like that's a really hard thing to step outside of. But another thing that I keep on, I mean, you know, as I've been kind of re again reprocessing even all the many Bible stories I grew up hearing, even talking about that Jacob story of okay, Jacob, the one who wrestled the angel, and then his name gets changed to Israel. That story has has been one that's come come back to me and really stuck with me as well, especially through my journey of of wrestling really in my own sense, wrestling with God and wrestling with, with the, the idea of how, how do I comprehend this thing? How do I even be sure? I mean, can I even be sure this thing exists? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like the cool thing that I relate to again about the end of that story is this, you know, he, he, he wrestles with this angel that may be God all night. And in the morning he sort of wins, but then suddenly he gets touched. Mm-hmm. And his hip is screwed up. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he's not able to live without a limp anymore. Now there's, mm-hmm. sorry. I permanent mean, damage. Yeah, there's a, there's a permanent damage that, that, that stays with you and says, okay, you know, like once you've had that experience of, of really trying to, to grapple with and, and, and wrestle with your beliefs, Mm-hmm. And you get to the bottom of it, and you maybe sort of win, or or you get to the end of it, anyways. If you can get through that experience, th- there's there's a sort of blessing and a curse that comes with it, where you you walk through life maybe with this sort of humility, where you. And I don't know if, if that's really <laughs> with the story. <laughs> kind of like think, having a mental illness. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's. It, it, I'll tell you the story that the one that jumps out at me at the moment, and and. I, I feel where you're coming from there because that is... And go for it. I, I think actually my wife is calling me so she should probably wrap, wrap it up in the, in the next... Yeah, minutes, so yeah, I'll just this. end right here. Um, the story, the one that jumps out at me and that I've been so terrified about like outing myself as a mental health patient is the story of Jonah and the whale hmm. where Jonah is like tasked with like going back to, where is it, Nineveh? Uh, <laughs> and like telling everybody that the way they're doing shit is wrong. And I remember that story scared the hell out of me my whole life. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, one, I don't want to be a missionary. Two, I don't want to have to like go tell people that the thing they're doing is wrong. <laughs> and three, be swallowed by this horrible fish. And like, it just, all of it sounded off. And then the reality is, is like, I found myself kind of in that similar position where I, I feel like I have a unique experience that people from that world will identify with. They know the character of Jimmy Barkley or the work that I did with Adventures in Odyssey. Um, But then this health problem I went through completely blew up the reality of that culture for me. Um, And now that that culture is imploding and I feel becoming very dangerous, I feel an obligation to go and say, hey, and I don't want to do it. I don't want to out myself to this crowd. Christians have been horrible to me when I admit that I'm mentally ill. But if a little, if gymnasts can talk about mental illness now, I surely should be able to, I should have the courage. So it's, I think for me, the story that I cling to these days is, is Jonah. Like, this is my whale. Like, I I don't want to tell people they're doing the wrong thing, but I think there's something very unhealthy here. And I think we, as people of conscience, because I believe most people in that system are good people. I really do. Hmm. I think they're really wonderful, lovely people full of love. Yeah. Um, but lots of people full of love get trapped in cultish systems that harm them. And 
through no fault of their own. It's just, that's where they ended up uh, through their family or the part of the world they live in. Um, the question is, is are we actively working together to make the world better? And this is a country right now where we cannot even agree that wearing a mask is good, that getting a vaccine is good. And we're in the middle of like really massive trauma and the people that you would expect to be the ones to lead us out of this. You would think if you grew up as an evangelical, you would think like, oh, the Christians are going to lead us out of this. And no, they're the ones exacerbating it. And so I, again, I'm speaking in generalities, um, but I just want to challenge people wherever you're at in life. Take a step outside of it. Challenge it a little bit. Ask yourself, am I trapped in a political cult? Um, And is, is the religious belief that I have, am I actively making the world better? Or do I believe, oh, the world can't be made better and I've washed my hands of everything and I'm not actively engaged in this world while people are suffering? And I, for me, the answer became like, I have to help out. I have to, you know, get involved in my political party and try and get universal health care like the Canadians have. Um, you know, we gave, you gave us Steve Martin we gave you did, did we give anything to canada like you gave us hockey okay we gave you american football which is objectively <laughs> awful uh you know but can we get some of that health care down here like yeah. um but in the end I, I think the questions that you're asking are huge massive questions and having a seeking heart matters it really is important and the willingness to listen to others that we've just and and bred into white evangelical christianity is an inability to listen to people that don't agree with us and we we because we've been primed that we're right and they're wrong but what if we're wrong as a mental health patient i had to face that am i wrong and then oh i am oh shit now what and i spent 25 years trying to put the pieces back together yeah. And so I, if I can use my life as an example to others, yes, you might be wrong. Be prepared for that yeah. and be willing to step into it and, and question it. It's okay to be wrong. Better to find out you're wrong than to live a lie your entire life, right? Yeah. Even if it's uncomfortable. Um, and so just question what, you're, what we're doing. Ask ourselves, are we making things better or not? And at the end of the day, do healthy trees put off rotten fruit? Do rotten trees put off healthy fruit? <laughs> is is this system creating good fruit? Yeah. And if it's not, what are we going to do about that? And and that's that's where I'm willing to step in and and answer questions about self mutilation <laughs> and say like I think there's something wrong here. <laughs> so, well, man, thank you for listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and and honestly, thank you so much for for being patient and hanging out with me. And and like, I feel like this has been a, a an evening for both of us. I mean, won't they just to have sit down and have a beer and have, have a nice chat for sure? And just and process some stuff. But I appreciate your patience in you know talking talking with me and talking about some some tough stuff, and even hitting hitting stuff that we don't obviously are not quite on, exactly on the same page on. But like that that patience, okay. I think is is exactly what. I'm looking to to learn how to practice more of, and I really appreciate you doing with that with me tonight, man. No, thank you for the opportunity. I, I, and I do admit, like I have been genuinely terrified because I, <laughs> I, you know, my fans scare me the last four or five <laughs> years, and I, I've, 
I've had a writer from Adventures in Odyssey tell me that I should not out myself as a mental health patient to the fans, that it wouldn't be safe for my family. Uh, so it's been, for me, it's nerve wracking to talk about these things to this crowd. But I, I also believe like you feel a calling to do what you're doing. I feel that same calling. Like, yeah. And I felt it for years and I've been wrestling with it. Uh, like, no, I don't want to go talk about my mental health problems to the crowd that's been so mean to me. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to tell them that I think they're wrong. But it, that nagging like notion has been in my head. And sometimes I think that's God talking to me, saying something. So I, I think maybe this is a perfect opportunity for us both to, I hope, keep a dialogue going within the culture and get folks to question things. Don't stop accepting shit blindly. Just yeah. question it. Um, and then let's get to some greater ethical place where we are working together to make things better instead of hating each other endlessly and just burning everything to the ground. Absolutely. And my hope is that this is the first conversation we have and not the last. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, man, is there anything anything you want to plug? Is there anything you're doing right now that you want people to go and... and- I mean, I'm sure there's, yeah, there is, but I'll be honest with you. Like I, I, to me, when it comes to like issues of religion and, um, and commerce, like, I don't want to combine those because I feel like I've already done that in my (laughs) life and it didn't turn out very well for me. So, um, mostly what I want to plug right now is I want people to know that you can vote for Democrats and not go to hell. Uh, I'd like to tell people that, (laughs) in the democratic party it's full of religious people many of them are evangelicals and christians or who came from that background um and this narrative in america that you know liberals are evil is garbage and it is a lie from the pit of hell uh that's one of the ways you know you're in a political cult Um, and so if i had to plug anything i really want to plug the idea of we're in the middle of a pandemic we can make this better now We have to set aside our arrogance and our pride that we're right and everyone's wrong and that we have experts for a reason. And, and this, you know, so if I have a thing to plug, that's what I want to plug. I would like to bring common sense back to the world um, and get away from this mixture of religion and politics in America. Um, And like, let's get out of this pandemic together you can vote Democrat. Help us defeat these fascist bastards who are manipulating <laughs> our religion against us. And, and that's really what. And then, and then at some other date, I'll be happy to plug my my podcast. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But man. for now, can we put an end to the pandemic, please? Like, <laughs> I really, I want to work with actors again, and I can't. I'm stuck oh, in man. my house, and it's stupid. All right. Thank you again, man, so much for doing this. This is this has been a good time. Much love. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and let's do it again. Sounds good, man. All right, I'm gonna end the recording there, and um, I actually probably should really run home right now. It's 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 pretty late over here, so. No, th- I know that went long. I told you it would. It's all right, man. <laughs> I, I kind of expected that. <laughs> but, dude, man. I, well, I, I hope that was good. Yeah. So. No, I mean, that was good. It was it was it was real. I mean. It was a real, it was a real chat, and I guess That's I mean I, I I'm I'm really thankful for your 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 genuineness and and, sh- and sharing. I mean, this is some heavy stuff, and I know that was a lot to to emotionally prepare for, and I appreciate it, man. And 
you know. I trust you. Do good things with it, man. And then <laughs> let's do it again, all right? All right, man. All right. Well, good night, dude. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.